Welcome back to Game Studies Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies, or at least the parts of it we have read yet. I'm Cameron, and with me, as always, is Michael. Hey there. Michael, we have read a book. Mm-hmm. How unusual for us. How odd. Uh, you know, much like uh, Cindy Lauper. <laughs> We're so unusual. Mm-hmm. The uh, This is a show where we read books, academic game studies, and then we talk about them. Talk about them in a way that uh, hopefully makes them useful or uh, discussable or at least a little bit understandable by people who don't have a huge amount of uh, ooh, uh, sunk cost uh-huh. into advanced degrees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, that's the ultimate. Uh, experience, but uh, today we're reading a book as part of the Summer of Classics. Wow, wow, wow! The Summer of Classics. <laughs> summer of Classics is uh, just us reading some books over the summer. Big ones we want to get to. And uh, last time, what did we do, Michael? Uh, last time, what did we do? I feel like the time between episodes of this show is like dilating. Uh huh. <laughs> like, does that make sense? <laughs> yes, because we do. We do do. We did Gary Allen Fine <laughs> shared fantasy. You see, okay, that makes sense. But if you had asked me when did I read shared fantasy, I would say like I don't know six months ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's not true though. Yeah, we did uh, shared fantasy, and uh, which big book? You can go back and check out that episode. It's episode forty eight. You can go to rangetouch dot com to check that out, or you can search game study study buddies wherever you found this episode. Uh, but, uh, the other one here, the second one, second book of, uh, the Summer of Classics, it's a, it's a, it's a book that's not a game studies classic. No, not, not really. What have we done? I don't know. What, what sort of awful mistake have we made? Ah! Ah! We're reading. Actually, we already read. <laughs> we, it's not in the future. We have read, and we're about to discuss. Stuart Hall's Cultural Studies, 1983. Uh, and the reason this is part of the Summer of Classics, we didn't really talk about it. I think we just said, hey, we should read this book. Yeah. And then we decided to do it. So we didn't have a lot of, we haven't had a pre-discussion about this even uh, in the past several months. But I think the reason we did it, tell me if I'm wrong here, mm-hmm. is that we talk about cultural studies a lot on this show. Yeah. We talk about the assumptions of cultural studies, and we'll talk about what cultural studies is in just a minute if you're not familiar, uh, which is fine. And uh, But we talk about that a lot. We talk about Stuart Hall. We talk about Raymond Williams occasionally. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've never done a show that is really, truly cultural studies, especially in its kind of historical form. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stuart Hall looms large over media studies, over the analysis of cultural objects, over the analysis of culture itself, in a broad sense, uh, in academia. You know, mm-hmm. in lots of different fields, particularly my field, but probably your field, too. I imagine literary studies cares about Stuart Hall a little bit. Oh, yes. Every now and again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and for lots of other fields, too. But uh, weirdly enough, I would say that Stuart Hall, uh, as as someone to be deeply engaged with, not just as like a citation of like, here's someone who does cultural studies and they show up a little bit. They don't get read. You know, they don't get engaged with. As someone who is like a key interlocutor. Stuart Hall's kind of missing from game studies, uh, and, I, and not in game studies in the sense that 
of the practice that everyone does worldwide. You know, I'm sure there are people uh, everywhere. But in some disciplines, you know, and in some parts of media studies, uh, Stuart Hall is like a final determinant, right? right? Like you run into him and he sets the boundaries for what the conversation is. And that is not the case in game studies. Um, yeah. And for reasons we could probably piece together if we kind of speculated about, right? You know, mm -hmm. game studies really emerges at the beginning of the early 2000s as a discrete field, um, you know, a wholly coherent field of interlocutors engaging with one another. You know, this is around DIGRA. This is around the formation of the Game Studies Journal. And uh, I don't think that the people who were involved in that initial work, I don't think that they were really cultural studies people, mm -hmm. you know, uh, qua cultural studies. And so uh, the founding kind of big capital T theory um, um, ideas that were in Game Studies uh, you know, the Kawas, the Hazingas, that kind of thing. They they weren't really, uh, you know, that that's a different trajectory than Stuart Hall. Most importantly, and this is something we're going to talk about, Stuart Hall's a Marxist mm -hmm. uh, and explicitly a Marxist. And if there is something that, that I feel confident about, about the early wave of game studies and honestly really game studies today, it, it is not overwhelmingly Marxist. Yeah, uh, I, I would say that Marxist game study scholars and, and game study scholars who are engaging heavily with the Marxist tradition which you can do without being a Marxist, right? Uh, that's that's why uh, in the 70s, we invented the term Marxian <laughs> to <laughs> yeah. get around that. But I would say that largely um, that kind of political affiliation uh, and mode of engagement is just not something that game studies is overwhelmingly engaged in. That's a generalization. That's a big uh, you know, statement. Obviously, that is not the case for every single game study scholar on the planet or even every single place where game studies is done. But I feel pretty safe saying that as a general thing. Uh, see the last, oh, I don't know, 50 episodes or so mm -hmm. of the show uh, and count the number of, of Marxists that are in there and uh, you're going to come up pretty short. Um, that's not a selection bias issue. That's, that's a, uh, I think, a common thing in the field. Michael, uh, who's Stuart Hall? What's he all about? So, uh, <clears throat> Stuart Hall, uh, was a, well, so, uh, he was born in 1932 and he passed away in 2014. Uh, just, yeah. so we have kind of like the dates on the table there. Uh, he was, uh, Jamaican born. Um, he eventually, uh, immigrated, uh, to the United Kingdom where he went to school at, I'm double checking here, uh, one of the Oxford schools. Yes. Merton college in, uh, Oxford, hmm. uh, sort of, uh, by, by the end of his life, he was a professor of sociology. That was sort of what his title was. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about like sociology and, and what role that plays in cultural studies, I suppose. Um, but the thing that he uh, becomes very much known for, Hall, um, is uh, being one of the kind of founding figures of the tradition of British cultural studies. Uh, and this happens primarily through the uh, uh, University of Birmingham, um, particularly uh, it was the uh, center for for the study of popular culture i can't remember exactly what the name of it was i actually i have it here in my notes um yeah british cultural studies richard hogg yeah uh the center for contemporary cultural studies at at birmingham um and uh like so 
just to maybe underscore how notable it is that Hall doesn't show up in a lot of video game uh, studies or like game studies broadly, uh, is that Hall ends up being one of the people who kind of like writes the book, or if not the book, one of the key essays on how to interpret television. Yeah. Um, so what is what is cultural studies? We're going to talk about that pretty extensively, but in kind of a big picture way of thinking about this, uh, cultural studies is a way or it names a uh, academic orientation tendency and desire to look at what we can call popular culture, like uh, uh, specifically like sort of post-war mass mediated popular culture. Uh, So things like television or like how do people listen to the radio and and that sort of thing. Um, And that may seem like, well, who cares uh, in the present day and age? Uh, But in the like 70s, when this is really kicking off as as a field, like that's hugely important because the and we'll probably get to this as well as we discuss uh, uh, what Hall is talking about uh, prior to uh, kind of, you know, 1945 and the 1950s, uh, when you said culture and you said you studied culture, uh, you were studying a very narrow selection of things, things like, you know, Shakespeare, etc. Like high like culture meant high culture, particularly in the academy, particularly if you're an academic and you were studying uh, these things. Um, and so cultural studies uh, forms, uh, and in part at least, because after World War II, there is a... The, people see, like, mass media and sort of, like, the effects of mass media, and they think this needs to be studied, and we need to uh, develop theories of culture that can incorporate things like uh, popular advertisements, uh, television shows, radio programs, and so on. Uh, And Hall is very influential in in that movement, Um, and then, obviously, with kind of his background as someone from Jamaica who goes to the United Kingdom, um, is also going to push questions of uh, colonialism and race into the center of the conversation uh, in ways that, uh, you know, scholars before him are not going to. Yeah. And, you know, he's he's very clear about uh, pointing out his predecessors who will kind of walk through in this book. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's exactly as you said, right? That culture meant a very different thing before the 1970s. Uh, and there was a academic and popular struggle to get people to consider that mass media forms uh, mattered mm-hmm. uh, in a general sense, right? And uh, that happened in a lot of different fields. Um, and, you know, I, I actually kind of strongly associate that in the United States, the academic study of this stuff with communication, um, mm-hmm. communication studies, um, the, the emergence of communication studies after the Second World War. Um, and, uh, pop culture as a thing. I actually don't know. I I wonder when did the pop culture studies conference start? I would not know. I don't know either. That's (laughs) what I'm going to, I'm going, I'm Googling it this very minute. Wow. Uh, they, uh, 1979. Okay. Um, the American culture association became a partner in the study of park culture Hmm. and they started the conference. So, so yeah, right. These things are kicking off in the United States around the same time. And so let me see, is that the, uh, that might be like the same year. So, uh, I, I gestured at it. We may gesture at it additionally, but just so you know, because I name dropped it, uh, the halls 1973 was when he wrote his essay on the encoding decoding model of communication. Uh, that's the essay to go to if you're curious about, uh, you know, Hall's particular method for, uh, 
analyzing and and discussing television programs uh, is the encoding decoding essay. It's hugely influential um, and shows up in, in all sorts of places. Yeah, it gets smuggled. In, I mean, we're going to talk about it in this episode because it gets smuggled into <laughs> some analysis, some like like sideways analysis. I mean, uh, we'll talk. Uh, in, let, let me say one or two other things about Stuart Hall generally, and then we'll kind of dive into the book because, uh, you know, I would say, let me say this up top. If you're making it only to like the 15 minute mark and you're turning this off. Uh, this book is, I think, the best introduction to cultural studies I've ever read. Oh, um, I, I just straight up, I, I'd never sat down and read this whole book before. You know, that, that was not a book that I'd done. I've read a lot of Stuart Hall. But I think that if you are interested in the intellectual stakes behind what is going on here and then the competing models that produce cultural studies and that are still within cultural studies, right? Like, where does meaning lie and where does it come from? Mm -hmm. uh, and what are the different tools in the toolbox for understanding where meaning came from, you know, at least pre-1983? Uh, I think this is amazing. I, I think that this is, the, I, I think I'm going to teach this in the fall, actually. I'm teaching a course on social reproduction theory. Um, and I think well. this is a really helpful kind of media um, intro to, to that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think this book is great, but partially exactly what you were saying, right? Uh, partially because it folds in so much uh, other kind of Stuart Hall stuff that matters. Uh, I would say, you know, this is just my perspective as someone who kind of came up in this field. I'm by no means an expert on Stuart Hall, and I'm not really an expert on cultural studies, although I did take a lot of coursework in cultural studies and work very closely in graduate school uh, with scholars who are cultural studies people. This book, I think, folds in two big ideas that show up in Stuart Hall, uh, but that don't really, that before 1983, but which don't really surface in the book themselves. So that's why I want to say it here. So the first one is the one that you just said which is um, encoding, decoding, right? Um, and how do things get put into media objects? You know, how do media objects have kind of uh, strains and modes that are implanted in them, meanings that are inherent in them as objects? And then how are those received? And mm -hmm. what are the cultural mechanisms that we have for doing both of those things, right? So like, what, what kind of ideologies are you and I born into that make us or, you know, born and raised and live within uh, uh, it's not, you know, stapled in at birth, but what are those things that, uh, make us or allow us to interpret things in certain ways? And when we make stuff, what are the cultural contexts that we put into them? Right. That's what encoding and decoding is about, mm -hmm. uh, in a fundamental way. Um, and if you're interested in that method, you can read that 1973 essay. We're not going to get super deep into it here. The other is policing the crisis. Mm -hmm. Um, policing the crisis, I think is 79. Hold on. Let me make sure that's true. Uh, 78. Policing the Crisis is a political analysis of what's going on in the political rhetoric of the UK in the late 1970s, particularly around kind of second generation uh, immigrants. So like, you know, the, or I guess first generation immigrants, you know, the children of the people who were immigrating into England in the 1950s. Um, and the kind of racial, political, hegemonic uh, discourse that was about them, right? So it's a book about what are people saying in the world uh, around race, around uh, political opportunity, around economics, and then what is happening in the world, you know, because of those kind of discursive formations. And it's a sociological work, I guess, right? I mean, Stuart Hall is really hard to define in those ways. He's kind of a everything and nothing kind of mm -hmm. scholar. But but it is a direct application case. So we're going to talk about particularly about politics uh, at the end of this book, because that's where this book goes. 
And if you're curious about like how does Stuart Hall do a whole book on that, of course it's a co-written book. Uh, Stuart Hall wrote a lot of things. Actually, I, I would think most of the things he is most well known for are actually co-written. Certainly written with groups of people or, or in alliance with a whole bunch of people. Um, but if you're curious about like what is the like political outcome of a cultural studies approach, like at the end of the day, policing the crisis is a, a pretty big example of that because it kind of looks at the whole cultural formation, all the ways that discourse gets kind of produced and then put and then practices that come out of that. We're going to talk a little bit more about those key terms in a minute. Um, it, how does that shape out? And then looks very explicitly at a, at a historical example that matters a lot um, because, uh, you know, uh, Stuart Hall was 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 seeing a kind of nightmare political moment emerge in the late seventies in the UK, and it eventually turns into Thatcher's England. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's it's a it's a thing that matters. Um, Policing the crisis. The title is Policing the Crisis: Mugging the State and Law and Order. Right. Mm-hmm. So, big deal. Apparently, a foundational text for criminology. I did not know that. Interesting. Yeah. Um, not not a criminologist. So uh, that's that's just me saying a lot of stuff about Stuart Hall here at the top. Um, Do you have to read any Stuart Hall in graduate school? Oh, yeah. Uh, What's interesting about uh, Stuart Hall by himself was maybe less important to my education than cultural studies as a field because uh, British cultural studies, as you might suspect, I don't know what anyone might actually suspect, uh, it was it had a huge impact on the study of Shakespeare. Um, and as being a person who's always kind of like interested in like the history of the discipline or the method like me, uh, this meant that that was a a lot of my own reading. And it was what I did when I was doing my research was looking into kind of like the history of Shakespeare studies and the emergence of cultural studies had a massive impact on how Shakespeare was talked about and discussed because, uh, you know, gesturing at what I said before, um, there was a, you know, through line of Shakespeare is kind of like the embodiment of high culture for a long, long time. Uh, and then uh, with the emergence of uh, cultural studies, uh, you get scholars who are going to talk about Shakespeare as like a commodity, right? As a as a thing that is implicated in like capitalist networks of, of production and exchange and consumption. Um, but also like... Uh, you know, r- rather than taking Shakespeare as sort of this embodiment of of uh, like the best ideals of of the British people or whatever, uh, turning that around and thinking like, oh, okay, how is this like a uh, a mechanism for colonial imposition, right? Like, how do mm-hmm. how does Shakespeare become uh, a like a cultural force in the sense that like he is being exported into subjugated uh, nations and taught to subjugated peoples in order to tell these people, here is what real culture looks like. Uh, your culture is deficient. Um, and all, all of that stuff, right? Like it really like cracks open uh, Shakespeare studies to kind of oppositional readings to uh, Marxist or like uh, strongly politically inflected readings Uh and so while I wasn't dealing – well, it, the other uh, consequence of this, more relevant, I think, to Stuart Hall, is this also opens the door to uh, talking about things like Shakespeare on film and Shakespeare uh, on television, right? Telecasts of Shakespeare plays, which kind of before the, before this moment were seen as uh, – 
not truly high culture enough to be talked about, right? <laughs> um, because mm-hmm. it wasn't really being made for the sake of the art or whatever. Uh, we're putting together this play and we're going to broadcast it on television so so the plebs can get a little bit of culture on their own too. Uh, so cultural studies uh, and uh, Stuart Hall, you know, within that uh, is something that I had to read a lot of in, in uh, grad school. Yeah, I mean, I... It, you can't really, especially in the United States, I don't think you can overstate how Stuart Hall flipped the narrative of what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and not j- and, and in two ways, right? One is like he had an actual impact uh, in the sense that like people read his work and it kind of transformed it, although there were, you know, simultaneously in the United States similar movements to do the same thing. It's not like Stuart Hall came around and radically re-altered everything. He's just kind of a, a big part of a wave of lots of people doing this worldwide. Um, but the other thing is that Stuart Hall kind of becomes like a, uh, I don't know, like a poster child for a particular kind of enemy, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, right? Like uh, in the sense that lots of more conservative forces within academia were able very clearly to point to Stuart Hall as like the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly a lot of, you know, there's a lot of theory published in the seventies and eighties that like, you know, Stuart Hall is, um, uh, you know, the charge of being, uh, uh, um, lessening the work. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there is a, for, for all the talk of culture wars, right. That we live in within 2022 and the way that that term gets used there quite truly actually was a thing called the culture war again <laughs> in the seventies and eighties, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, around how, how do you do these things? Right. You know, um, how do you treat films, movies, books, uh, the, you know, the, the canon wars uh-huh. of, uh, of the 1980s in particular, Stuart Hall becomes kind of a figure who stands in for the popularizing force that what, what if actually, I hate to break it to you, but like, what if any given film version of Shakespeare is probably seen by more people than have read right. the given play that it has, <laughs> right? And so what are the impacts of that where uh, The Lion King is no question in my mind, not even a little bit, the most popular form of Shakespeare uh, <laughs> that, that has ever been around. And so what does that mean, right? right. right. Just in terms of raw numbers and the impact that it has. Um, and so there were a lot of people who were invested in um, beating that down, right? You know, I certainly, when I was an undergrad, had professors still. This is the, the 2000s. You know, I had people still who were holding up the good, like capital C culture canonical fight. You know, mm-hmm. they, they were still thinking that was important. Um, and uh, certainly the discussion is important, right? I mean, Stuart Hall would say that. Stuart Hall definitely in this book, as we're about to talk about, Stuart Hall would say, yeah, we do have to talk about the ways that culture gets hierarchized and the way that certain forms of labor get valorized and how that gets culturally kind of, you know, uh, processed through. But uh, you got to give up on these these canons, I think, or at least understand that they are always in debate, always flexible, always being fought with. But that's a lot of words about Stuart Hall. Uh, before we talk about Stuart Hall, so let's just talk about this book. Um, again, I can say here at the beginning, I, I think generally you can just pick this book up and read it. Yep. Um, it's uh, quite truly, like, in the most basic sense, an introductory book to its topic. Yeah. Uh, he is, I, I mean, maybe let's talk about this. So, yeah. like, where did this book come from? Because the title, like, just to say a thing, 
the title has a date in yes. it or a year, that, which is kind of odd, right? You know, it's not it's not Persuasive Games 2007. <laughs> yeah. No, it's uh, Cultural Studies 1983, uh, A Theoretical History. Uh, and this comes out of a 1983 interdisciplinary conference at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Uh, called Marxism and the Interpretation of Culture, Limits, Frontiers, and Boundaries. And Hall was uh, a speaker at this conference uh, and gave, over the course of a week, some lectures, uh, which became the chapters in this book. Uh, The conference itself uh, obviously was about Marxism, but um, uh, according to the editors of this volume, Slack and Grossberg, uh, getting the first names here, Jennifer Daryl Slack and Lawrence Grossberg, uh, who were also at the conference. I think they were, in fact, uh, at least, if not just those two, but they were part of the conference organizing team. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so they uh, had all they had the transcripts of these uh, uh, lectures, uh, some of which have been like refashioned into actual articles that Hall has published. Um, and obviously like, uh, uh, if, if this is a thing that, uh, isn't familiar to you, it's worth emphasizing also that like a lecture that would have been delivered to a live audience is a very different sort of document than like an, a written essay that was written to be read by a person who's expecting to read an essay. Right. Um, and so what basically the i guess the mandate was for this series of lectures was hall just kind of walking through as he understood it um the history of the formation of cultural studies as a discipline uh like you know what went into it like what were kind of the necessary historical developments for it to come about um and then kind of elaborating on his particular version of what he thinks cultural studies is good for what it can do and uh what are kind of the problems the complications or the ambiguities that might arise that he thinks uh should be clarified or refined particularly uh in the case of of this uh series of lectures uh in in the the way that cultural studies engages with marxism and how it understands marxism um uh, or rather, I should say, maybe particular ideas from Marx. So mm-hmm. uh, the editors say that this, uh, you know, basically like this conference becomes a kind of inflection point for uh, American cultural studies as well. Right. A lot of people are at this conference. And uh, again, it's interdisciplinary. So uh, there's cross pollination happening. Right. The the ideas of Stuart Hall, as well as other people, are being communicated to a, a wide swath of people as well. Uh, and so the eventually the editors wanted to publish this book, um, and Hall agrees, but only uh, as a, this is a quote from them, uh, as a historical document. So uh, that's something maybe to keep in mind, touching on what I said about, like, the you know, lectures are very different from essays, uh, that to his mind, at least, uh, this publication is more about, like, having a record of what he said rather than uh, taking it as the final form of the argument. Because, again, parts of this got uh, explicitly rewritten, reprocessed, and elaborated in actual work that he published uh, uh, as books and as essays later on. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, it's uh, a lecture you give is not the same thing as a written article. And there is a this book is great at the summary, uh, but not great at like the breakdown, Mm -hmm. you know, for the most part. There are some places where it's amazing, actually, at the breakdown. Uh, But 
uh, you know, it, this is not a place where you you can see Hull working through all of the kind of angles, right? And and if there is something I do associate with Stuart Hall broadly, it is working through all the angles, right? Mm-hmm. You know, in his other published work, you know, kind of a clockwork mind in that way. You know, you're going to see him be like, and here's a thing that happens from this perspective. And if we look at it from this other perspective, here's what's happening from the, you know, perspective of the, the relations of production. Here's what's happening. We actually do get some of that in this book. The final two chapters are that, or mm-hmm. I guess the final chapter is that <laughs> when we talk about Jamaica <laughs> and Jamaican music, I can't wait. I cannot <laughs> wait. It's so, it's such a wonderful and, uh, truly surprising chapter <laughs> I was not prepared for, uh, but it's great stuff, but we'll get there. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, he definitely wants it to be, um, at least historically, you know, he told the people who edited this together, uh, yeah, Grossberg and Slack, uh, hey, I'm happy to do it, but look, this is this is a um, document of what happened less than like a position paper by me. Um and part of that has to do, too, with something we learn in the middle of this book where he says straight up, he's like, hey, uh, the most recent is not always the best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, we treat thinkers as if their most recent thought is the best thought that they've had, but that we shouldn't do that. These are all instances in time and when they are thinking, and some can be better than others because, you know, for example, he privileges early marks right. as uh, many people um, in the 70s are kind of engaging with. And uh, and so, you know, you get a sense that he's kind of thinking about that in terms of himself, too. Like, oh, if I'm held to this book, what does that mean? Right. Um, and so historical document, not as kind of a position uh, or as like the new, quote unquote, Stuart Hall work, whenever it happened. Mm-hmm. There's something interesting that happens here, too, at the beginning or in this kind of preface where the editors say that um, Stuart Hall agreed for it to be published, and it just kind of took a long time, right? I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, this this book came out recently. It came out in 2016. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's obviously quite a bit after it was given in 1983, despite the fact that as soon as these lectures were finished, they were actually recorded on tape, and Stuart Hall would pause and wait for them to flip the tape yeah. when they did it. I thought that was <laughs> great. Um, and... Uh, so, you know, no one missed anything. Very different from the Foucault lectures that we know about, where he was just talking <laughs> infinitely <laughs> and did not care what was captured or what wasn't. Um, but uh, but they started working on it immediately. They started transcribing it, graduate students and some of the people who were involved. Uh, they started transcribing it, and uh, they worked on it back and forth with Hall for years, and he died in 2014, and it only came out after he died. Mm-hmm. He did um, write a preface there, in 1988, though. He did write a preface, which we're about to talk about. But what's notable to me, and this is where my like biographical knowledge of Hall uh, really falls down, and I didn't f- find much about this when I just kind of searched it quickly, is that they say that that uh, I think in the late 80s, and or maybe in the late 90s, I can't remember now, it's somewhere here in the preface, at some point he decided he just did not want to publish much anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is notable, because he was extremely prolific in the 70s and 80s. And I don't know what happened, you know, mm-hmm. like, I don't know, you know, did he just not feel like the work was sufficient? Did Was he unhappy with the outcomes of the work, right? I mean, there yeah. is a way in the U.S. that, uh, especially in the 1990s, Hall's work is, uh, I don't use this word all that often because I, I save it for moments where I think it truly matters, uh, is appropriated straight up mm-hmm. by... Uh, an institution that is not interested at all in his political claims and is instead interested in the kind of cover that terms like resistance and struggle can give to dominant forces, mm-hmm. um, just to be straight up about it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, cultural studies kind of gets a bad rap at some point because uh, 
a lot of work starts being produced or, or at least some like notable bad work, I guess, maybe not a lot of work, but where like, Hey, did you know that reading X kind of book makes you resistant to Y dominant force? Um, and that's kind of, I think the parody of cultural studies at this point, right? That's yeah. not what cultural studies was doing, but there's a way that it gets kind of tagged with that bad behavior or like an ineffective behavior. Um, and that's not what Stuart Hall's doing here. It's not what's happening in the eighties. It's not what's happening in the seventies. It is a miss. Um, a, a, a misapplication or a misinterpretation just kind of depends on your perspective there, I guess. But I wonder if that was involved, you know, because cultural studies does take on a tone or a, the, or the critique of cultural studies takes on a tone, maybe, mm -hmm. is a better way of saying it. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. So that's a thing that I would be curious about investigating. But uh, he did, as you say, write a preface in 1988, uh, which we can move to if you want to do that. Um, anything that sticks out to you here? Uh, uh, just like two points that I think are, are interesting because, uh, I think this maybe illustrates at least some way in which like Stuart Hall has been influential for me as like a thinker and, and scholar and researcher. Uh, mm -hmm. he, in his preface, he emphasizes very much how, uh, the claims that he makes and the thoughts that he has are influenced by his own biography that he, his, mm -hmm. uh, while while he ends up making broad claims, right, because he's making claims about how society works and how it's structured and how resistance happens and so on, um, he doesn't want that to be taken as kind of like a universalized view from nowhere. Uh, and he's constantly pointing back to Jamaica and his time in Jamaica, like Jamaican history, his own history there, his experiences, uh, and then using that material to build out into his claims. And that's something uh, that uh, I like. I, I tend to do that a lot. I tend to be very aware of how my interpretations are of objects are uh, influenced by the path by which I lived a life that put me in contact with that object, right? Um, and he says something on page two that I just really like. It's, a uh, quote, ideas always arise in particular concrete historical locations, which inflect the ideas in certain ways. The ideas arise in part because of the history, which is like a plus plus truth, uh, like foundational kind of claim that I, I take is true about the world, right? That ideas arise because of history and, uh, I don't know. Does that not explain all of these damn podcasts that I do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, that's that's the kind of funny thing about reading this is being like, yep, I believe that. Yep, this is true. Yep, this is <laughs> this is right. Stuart Hall, you're on the money again. Yep. Right? <laughs> like it's reading the whole book, but it's because Stuart Hall has just had a massive impact. And in particularly just that generation of Marxist theorists, right, mm -hmm. um, has had a massive impact on the way I think about stuff, you know, uh, it's not Stuart Hall, you were right. It's, oh, uh, everything I believe comes from Stuart Hall. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and uh, one of the quotations that this is on page two uh, that I wrote down, right? Um, it's a little bit after the part that you're talking about. He says, one, this is like the, you know, he's so good at the pithy, you know, thing that just says the, the, the statement, right? Uh, quote, one draws upon theories to break into experience. Yes. Mm -hmm. right like that's it mm -hmm. like the stuff happens in the world i mean that's ultimately what i'm interested in right across everything explains all these podcasts it's all the work that i do academically it's my own book whatever right uh theory is a toolbox for figuring out the world you live in mm -hmm. right like that's it <laughs> like i i don't i don't have much interest in um 
you know, I love reading. Uh, it, I guess it's interesting to me that lots of people take this part and then are like, well, whatever, like ontology, who cares? Um, and I, 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 you know, I find myself somewhere in the middle of that, right? Where it's like, well, I don't know. Experience is structured by something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, it, and it might be, you know, a, a broader sort of, uh, metaphysics that we need to get to, to figure that out. But I think it's just, just true, right? And like, and if you want to turn the podcast off now and go do something else for your life, there you go. One draws upon theories to break into experience. The end. <laughs> Bing bong boom. Because the rest of the book is... A, a survey, you know, he says it's a survey of the history of cultural studies, and it's really a survey of the different ideas, theories, of how to speak to experience, cultural experience, mm-hmm. um, lived experience, right? Uh, and uh, most of them are in- engaged with or in conversation with Marx or in opposition to Marx. And so this book is probably going to go pretty quick as far as like Game Study Study Buddies books go. I, and every time I've ever said that, we've recorded a three and a half hour episode. So, uh-oh. Mm-hmm. But uh, but generally, all that we're going to work through the eight lectures, they all happened, I think, a couple days apart from one another. Um, yeah. It's like they weren't like back to back. Yeah. It's like a two or three week conference. Right. Yeah. Like a work. What would we call now? I think a workshop. Yeah. Uh, or like a summer school. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, so each of these lectures is like on a big idea in cultural studies and the history of cultural studies and where cultural studies came from up to 1983. And we're going to summarize each of them. Um, and this book's a little bit interesting in that regard, because uh, if you want to know more detail, it's a book that's a survey and it's, uh, you know, uh, summarizing some stuff. So if the chapter sounds interesting to you, you should buy the book. And read the chapter uh, because it's just someone explaining these ideas to you. It's kind of like us doing a podcast on a book that's kind of like this podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is. This is kind of like we read like eight transcripts of Stuart Hall doing a live podcast. And Basically, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, and that's the effect of Stuart Hall on the show too, right? Like at the end of the day uh, is what he's doing most of the time. And I would actually say a lot of his academic work is this kind of thing Mm -hmm. of like, Hey, here's these ideas. How do they actually work in the world? Um, But uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the preface. Uh, Lecture one, the formation of cultural studies. Yeah. Um, So what's interesting, at least about my notes, I don't know what you did, Cameron, because you didn't send me your notes. Uh, oh, did I not? You did not. I'll send you right now. I'll send you right now. Oh, okay. Well, so my notes, uh, by the way, you can get these notes for your own looking at pleasure. Uh, if you go to uh, patreon.com slash range touch, uh, you'll get all of the notes that we take for this show uh, back into history. Um, so my notes for this, rather than being kind of the normal thing where I go through and I do like page numbers, um, because of kind of the structure of this thing, I just kind of wrote summaries or like sort of snapshots of like what is going on in this lecture, kind of like what are its big main ideas, because in, in particular, for instance, this first lecture uh, has a history of cultural studies that you can extract out in kind of a, a, a like broad way. Uh, but there's also a lot of talking through of like specific names and specific people, uh, like specific scholars who are not themselves cultural theorists, but like nevertheless provided kind of uh, uh, methods or points of distinction that came to be important for cultural studies as it, uh, uh, you know, agglomerated into its own thing. Uh, and so there's just like a lot of like particular uh, historical detail uh, that I didn't really note because I was trying to like pull this into um, sort of like bite-sized chunks. Mm-hmm. 
big stuff that stuck out to you then? So uh, the big thing about like the formation of cultural studies that you need to understand, uh, and I've already gestured at some of this, uh, it comes about because of post like the conditions of life in post-World War II Britain. Um, the British Empire uh, recedes, right? Like, uh, uh, like gives up uh, sort of like official uh, imperial control over various territories. Uh, it declines as a world power. Obviously, the the war has had like massive like uh, effects in terms of like physical and material devastation. Um, but then there's also a uh, like the the rise of American hegemony, right? An American influence is uh, a kind of, I guess, maybe national trauma in a weird way because is and this is sort of I'm I'm pinging off of how Hall is framing this, right? For for mm-hmm, clarity yeah. here, um, because as Hall sort of lays this out, uh, Britain in in general and British Marxism in particular was very fond of taking itself as the supreme model for like how industrial society would function right because because britain was the the first industrial society therefore all industrial societies would follow in its image right it would set a type that other societies ha- would have no choice uh, but to follow and britain british empire uh, if you were an imperialist, right, would always be the premier empire. And if you were a Marxist, then uh, uh, you had to like any anything that you were doing to like fight empire had to be sort of geared specifically to fight the the 19th century forms of British empire. Right. Um, after World War Two. Uh, this does not seem to be the case anymore, right? Uh, American hegemony demonstrates that there are other ways to be an industrialized empire. Uh, like it, it sort of like the, the influence of American culture on British culture and sort of like post-war, uh, material affluence that gives rise to kind of like this comfortable, like, uh, like upper working class, but also like a middle class sort of like the, uh, the big thing in this, uh, lecture um, is the birth of the teenager, which is also happening in America and sort of like the birth of teenager subcultures. Uh, this renders like old, uh, British understandings of class systems, uh, sort of obscure, uh, cause you know, up till that point, Britain had a, a very sort of like specific and rigid class structure, uh, and with American influence that sort of starts falling apart, um, now, it happens that, and this is blamed on kind of, you know, American influence and sort of the spread of American-style mass media. Uh, and the problem that arises is that a lot of people who are writing on these issues in Britain are just taking studies on these same topics from America and just sort of, like, plopping them down on the UK and being like, yep, that's the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, like, you know, uh, uh, rationalizing or justifying all of... Not not justifying, but, like, uh, uh, just just saying, yeah, like, as goes America, so now goes Britain. Um, and cultural studies uh, bubbles up, at least in part, uh, as an attempt to fight back against that tendency and say, like, no, like, Britain has a particular history with particular, like, social and cultural formations... Uh, that are going to influence uh, in their own ways, like the effects of the spread of, of mass media and things like that. Um, uh, related to that, then, uh, the, the new left at this time uh, understands that kind of traditional Marxist modes, uh, or like Marxist models, I should say, uh, are not adequate uh, for understanding what is going on because Marx is writing for the 19th century and uh, World War II and sort of like the the, the 
the ways that industrialism and then sort of like the effects of the war have shifted what the uh, capitalist landscape looks like to such a degree that like Marx must be uh, uh, revised or updated or like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, needs to be reformatted in order to speak to these new conditions. Um, and cultural studies in particular, uh, as Hall uh, outlines it, uh, finds these new tools in uh, methods that are borrowed from literary theory, particularly the the close reading methods of F.R. Levis, uh, who is, I think he's Oxford. I think he's Oxford. Uh, And if he's Cambridge, I don't really care. I'm an American. Um, And anyway, (laughs) these terms mean nothing to us. Uh, We are but simple folk that live in the dirt over here (laughs) at our large state schools. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, and F.R. Levis, right, is notable, and this is this is also a very important thing to note about Hall and kind of his method. Uh, F.R. Levis is a conservative cultural critic. Uh, like his uh, his school of literary criticism, as is, is Hall kind of you know characterizes it, is very much devoted to um, bourgeois Protestant work ethic kind of values. Uh, I can't remember the specific line that uh, Hall uses in in this lecture, but it's pretty great where he says that you know in in Levis's situation, like the work of literary criticism was getting into a room with like eleven other guys smoking pipes and like looking at the paper and being like, well, this is quite degenerate it isn't it um right uh and so uh nevertheless right like his method of close reading uh is something that uh cultural studies can take up and inflect with a different political orientation um and partly it does this uh through you know like this engagement with marxism uh but the other important thing is that the discipline of sociology is providing uh, uh cultural studies or like sort of this you know first wave of cultural studies scholars um with the tools to talk about not what traditional literary criticism and sort of tradition like to to invent a thing here a little bit traditional like cultural criticism would talk about um which is like society as a whole right there there's always this talk about um society as just this thing that is singular stable self-identical uh and that's how you get like a tradition of culture that says like oh yeah like welcome to culture here are the six authors you need to know because you know the like that's the that's the culture that's the society uh sociology on the other hand provides ways of looking at uh, uh the social that does not take it as kind of like a big chunk uh but recognizes like divisions within it uh that the social is made up of particular classes uh and this is you know like not just classes in kind of like the marxist sense but um you know things like uh, uh religious uh subgroups or uh sort of like cross class alliances and and things of that nature um so we've got all of this stuff getting uh, mixed up here, and then also in this lecture, Hall introduces kind of what is the the ongoing concern maybe of all of these lectures, which is an interrogation of Marx's, Marx's base and superstructure model, um, where the kind of traditional understanding uh, uh, is that uh, the base, which is to say like the mode of production of a society is wholly determinant of the structure, uh, such that the final content of any cultural production is the economic. So the uh, meaning there, to put that in kind of a plainer sense, uh, that 
anytime you have a question about like what's going on in society, like why is this movie popular? Why are people doing this? Uh, what's this book really about? The answer is the economy. Or like some some mode of exchange, right? This is this is uh, I I trot this out I think occasionally across our shows, but uh, when I say that the Hobbit is a fairy tale that teaches children the importance of like capitalist contract law, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> um, is is kind of reducing the the cultural to to the economic, right? To to make the the hard version of that claim is something like, uh, you know the. The Hobbit is a part of a, a cultural program that trains children to think through uh, their lives in terms of like contractual obligations and commitments. And this is preparing them for a life where they're going to grow up and become good little capitalists who are taking out loans and signing their names on all these contracts and so on and so forth. Hall CS strongly disagrees with the idea that uh, this is this is the end point of culture. So that's one thing we should be clear on up here. It is a that mode of reading, the, the kind of vulgar Marxist mode of reading is something that Hall is going to fight back against very strongly. Right. Uh, and he basically says, like, we don't have enough tools to do that, you know, by in in the uh, this kind of pre moment of cultural studies. Mm -hmm. Right. Like. In, in this moment, we don't. So, so a name that uh, didn't come up in what you just said, but who is a, a little bit important here is uh, I'm looking for his first name here. Uh, Richard Hogart. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what, what a name. Richard Hogart uh, was uh, he wrote a book called The Uses of Literacy. Mm hmm. Um, in uh, in the 50s. And it's basically just a, an analysis of um uh, of culture by using exactly as you just said literary techniques to read culture right so can you read the way that people read right the culture itself our way of engaging the world can you read people like you read a book mm -hmm. and hall said you know can you apply the techniques of literary uh, analysis to them and hall says well no but good idea right mm -hmm. like what if cultural uh, experience and the way that people are talking about their experience, what if it is an, an object? You know, what if it has boundaries? What if it has modes? What if it has, um, you know, kind of forms of discourse to it that you can then pull themes out of, that you can pull analyses out of, whatever, right? And he says that the Hogarth really gets us going down the right path because this is an additional tool that you can use to maybe supplement or augment exactly what you just said, the kind of uh, uh, Marxist critique that is insufficient to that task, right? Mm -hmm. Like, at the end of the day, uh, Marxists at the time, you know, that had been inheriting the tradition out of the 19th century, their only mechanism was to say, you know, at the end of the day, the economy or economic relations or pr the relations of production, those things are the final determinant of all the other stuff. And Hall says, well, hold on just a minute. We might need some other tools for getting there. And he particularly talks to another. Uh, by the way, Hogarth is the founder of the Center for Cultural Studies yes. at uh, Birmingham, right? Yep. Uh, which he does, I think, in the 50s. I actually had this pulled up really quickly. Um, do, 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 do. he was at Leicester, uh, 1964. Um, and he was the director until 1969. And, and then he went to work for UNESCO, <laughs> <laughs> which is, is like, oh yeah, this is when like UNESCO started. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
which is fascinating. He became warden of goldsmiths uh, from 76 to 84, and then he retired. And then, like, uh, later in his life, wrote books about, like, the waning of religion and how that was bad for culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he became, like, that guy. Yeah. I mean, even um, his first but- book, which was about uh, sort of, like, the loss of tradition. Like, he's, he's a working class guy from the north, and he becomes a scholarship mm-hmm. student. And this is, you know, very impactful. Um, but his first, like, the, the uses of literacy, I think, is, like, partly about... Uh, you know, the the loss of traditional British working class culture in the shadow of post-war mass media. Right. So there is always that sort of right. like backward cast to to his orientation here. Mm-hmm. And and uh, as Hall says throughout the rest of the book, because he goes back to Hogarth. Right. Uh, uh, you know, he, he kind of repeatedly talks about the method of that book. And yeah, I mean, Hogarth is reading um, what's what is happening in working class culture. And based on what is occurring in that culture in this moment, right, of, of you know, out of the 19th century into the, the both world wars and then out of that, you know, post-45, post-American dominance of world culture, uh, what's what's going on there, right? Like, what are the older forms that used to be that, that are disappearing? All that kind of stuff, like you're saying. Um, so, you know, Hull says, interesting, you know, way of approaching these things, but maybe insufficient in terms of like all the other stuff going on. And maybe you need a little bit of a dose of Marxism, mm-hmm. uh, Hogarth. And so the chapter kind of ends, uh, and this will help us get to the next chapter, but the chapter kind of ends with saying, hey, there was this fellow named Raymond Williams running around mm-hmm. in England, and he was doing some interesting stuff, um, you know, but he was not uh, engaging Marx directly. This is a quote on page 21. Uh, he says that ultimately, he's talking about Raymond Williams's early works. He says, quote, he needs richer concepts than the tradition can provide him with, but he needs as well to intellectually connect with people who are often unwilling or unable to think the problem in Marxist terms. Mm-hmm. Right. So he says that if you read early Raymond Williams, who we'll talk about in depth in just a minute. If you read early what Raymond Williams, on one hand, you see him deploying ideas out of Marx that have the like the key terms erased, mm-hmm. right? So he's like talking about relations of production, but he's not using the words relations of production, right? Because right? it's a Marxist term, and that would flag him as part of being part of this um, group of people who are not really ascertaining culture in like the the right way for him. That's in quotation marks, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the the right way of doing culture. But also, uh, he and he's doing that because he wants to talk about you know things like the relationship of production. With people who are going to reject Marxist analysis out of hand. Yes. Right? Because they're studying something else. People like Hogarth who do who are not interested in Marx, right? Because Marxism, uh, especially in England up to that point in the Marxist analysis of culture, as you were saying, Michael, uh, was reductive mm-hmm. and insufficient to the task in front of it, right? Mm-hmm. So what's happening here in the 1950s in the emergence of cultural studies is two things at once. One, a revivification of some ideas in Marx, but without the baggage of Marxists, Mm -hmm. right? Like that's one. And on the other hand, an active engagement with ideas outside of the Marxist tradition in order to beef up what Marx is doing. Mm -hmm. And so what this lecture one is about is like, where are all the pieces? You know, what are all the pieces of the puzzle before we can put them together? Which starts happening in lecture two, culturalism. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, So this is where uh, Hall really digs into two writers uh, who are going to be important to understanding what we mean when we talk about culture and culturalism. One is Raymond Williams, who you've already gestured to, and the other is this guy named E.P. Thompson. Uh, 
the sort of line on Williams that Hall comes down to is that uh, uh, Williams, like, uh, uh, oh, God, Hoggart, uh, and then also, like, in some ways, right, Hall himself, uh, working class background, a uh, scholarship student goes to school, um, and he attempts, he, he has a, a culture, what is it culture and society? Is that what his series is called? Mm, I think so. Culture and society. I can't remember if I had the right terms there. Like big yes, uh, kind of society. flagship book, right? Uh, where he is specifically pushing back against uh, the traditional British idea of high culture. Um, so uh, uh, a thing, an illustrative point here, right, is that uh, in the 19th century, there's this critic named Matthew Arnold, a uh, literary critic, sort of arts critic, uh, who says that culture is the, and I'm, I'm, I think I'm directly quoting, but this might be a paraphrase, culture is uh, the best of what's been thought and said. Right. There's this real kind of idea that uh, you could look at the entire cultural output of a society, uh, make decisions about what was really good and really bad. And those those kind of like uh, moral or ethical evaluations were just kind of objectively true. And you could just uh, round up all the good stuff and continue to teach that. And that is how culture perpetuates itself. Right. You find like the best poems, the best plays, the best novels. And that's your canon. You teach that. Um, and sort of the obvious, like, Marxist point here, uh, is coming in and being like, hey, isn't it weird how the best that's been thought and said rather, uh, consistently reaffirms the ideas and prejudices of the ruling class? Mm -hmm. Uh, weird, huh? Um, and so, uh, Williams tries to sketch a kind of counter tradition to that, right? While, while looking at the development of sort of historical, like high culture, um, pointing to like the alternative cultures of, of working class people or people who weren't, you know, uh, uh kind of the, the movers and shakers at the top of the hierarchy, um, uh, and he's got, you know, leftward politics, but as you've already said, Cameron, and as Hull says, he's kind of hamstrung, uh, on the one hand, by the fact that he is trying to talk around, uh, the concepts of Marx in order to dis discuss these ideas with people who are, who, who would reject, uh, Marxist sort of inflections out of hand. Um, mm -hmm. and then Hall says, uh, uh, Williams is that, he nevertheless, like, even though he is interested in kind of like the culture of resistance, he nonetheless tends to focus on the narrative and the objects that are of concern to high culture or mainline culture. Um, mm -hmm. So there's that. Uh, there's then also E.P. Thompson, who is kind, who uh, writes a really vociferous, it seems like, uh, review of Williams's work and therefore has a huge impact on, on how Williams develops going forward. Um, Thompson is more of a, I don't know if he's an avowed Marxist, but is less, uh, less willing to like, uh, you know, uh, sugarcoat it, right? He, he tends to be a bit more fire and brimstone about this, it seems. Uh, and as Hall says, he has a more sociological view in that he's going to look at non-literary texts uh, to find the voice of the British working class. So whereas Hall, or not Hall, but um, whereas Williams is maybe going to be caught up in Shakespeare or whatever and trying to think like, well, how did the working class interface with Shakespeare? Um, we have Thompson 
who is going to look at like old court records, right, and transcripts and things like that, and uh, yeah. looking looking at non literary uh, cultural documents and saying here you can find uh, sort of the perspective of the British working class. Um, ultimately, then, uh, both Thompson and Williams are in agreement in that they take culture. Like whatever, like culture is not now uh, the best of what's been thought and said, right? It's not in any way that kind of uh, prioritized or evaluative. Um, culture becomes uh, like the name for the space of how people in history uh, experience and also talk about the particular conditions of their existence. Um, and one of the results of this is that it allows them, Hall says, to recognize like uh, class cultures. Right. Uh, not, not just like in, you know, the, the most vulgar dogmatic Marxist sense, like here are your socioeconomic classes and everyone slots into those perfectly like little Lego bits. Um, by looking at class cultures, right, you can see people who uh, from an economic perspective might belong to a particular class, uh, but culturally have some sort of sympathy with someone uh, in a, a, a different socioeconomic bracket or like there's like a shared ideology there. And so like an example here uh, that Hall touches on is that um, the uh, in like the 19th century in Britain, um, you might expect that, like, for instance, the aristocracy doesn't care about uh, the poor people working in the factories, nor do the bourgeoisie. But in fact, the aristocracy had uh, this older kind of more, you know, medieval and feudalistic idea that people at the top of a social hierarchy, in fact, have a social obligation to the poor below them. Now, obviously, that's not going to, like, <laughs> play out in the abolition of the class hierarchy, but it does mean that the uh, aristocratic ideology had some kind of sense of necessary or obligatory charity that in fact the the middle class the bourgeois elements um deny totally right that everyone is kind of like a free economic agent and no one owes anyone anything uh and so that's that's like one of the things that you can get out of this kind of culturalist perspective that uh is sort of a modified or um you know revised uh, uh marxism yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a it's a complication right. to the model, right? You know, uh, we can't that ultimately, if Marxism in the English tradition pre nineteen fifties pre cultural studies, you know, when Hall's telling, ultimately it just tells an incomplete story, right? Mm -hmm. um, and which is not a way of lessening the historical impact, but it's more engaging with what happened historically, right? Mm -hmm. uh, E.P. Thompson, um, uh, you know, people might know from writing The Making of the English Working Class. Mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of his big book that's happening around the same time. Uh, and, you know, that's a book that's come back in a really big way. Uh, the number of, I would say, contemporary Marxists who... You know, it's kind of like reading Braver Men, right? Like, uh, <laughs> it's it's the book that shows up when people want to, like, trump card you about, like, what's going on in Marxism. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's very funny to read Stuart Hall being like, and here was E.P. Thompson back in the 60s saying, uh, here, I have the trump card on Marxism. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got the trump card on Raven Williams' analysis of culture, right? Uh, and I say all of that to say that there is a... Um, Already within this moment of the production of cultural studies, what E.P. Thompson stands in for in his this big review that you're talking about, the culture and society of the Raymond Williams book, it, it, it is saying that ultimately, this is E.P. Thompson's position, ultimately historical analysis trumps and dominates and in the last in instance should be the determinant of 
what we say happened mm-hmm. in culture, right? So it's not that just like the base determines everything else. Everything else. It's not just that the relations of production determine everything, but that the only way we can know what occurred, even if it's not just the basic production of, say, agriculture or goods or whatever, right? The only way that we can ascertain that appropriately is through historical documentation and the movement of classes, as opposed to, as you're saying, Raymond Williams is more cultural analysis here. Um, and it, this, this, this is what points to, you know, Stuart Hall is using both Raymond Williams and E.P. Thompson to talk about, um, because both of them are in the kind of prehistory of cultural studies, right? Cultural studies has not quite yet emerged as, as a thing yet. What's important uh, for thinking both of these these figures is that they each give like a critical element of what eventually becomes the whole model of cultural studies or the method of cultural studies, right? So on 33, he says, uh, I think this is uh, engaging with Williams. He says, quote, a practice is always cultured. It has been cultivated. It is impregnated with forms of interpretation. That is what culture is. Experience lived, experience interpreted, experience defined. Mm-hmm. One might say encoded and decoded. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. I, so when I was saying earlier that, you know, uh, some of the other um, Stuart Hall stuff is being smuggled in here, right? He's expressly saying here that the encoding and decoding model is being built off of this prior work, you know, in culturalism, what happens when you focus on culture. Um, and, you know, the other thing that he gets here to here, too, is that both Raymond Williams and E.P. Thompson are providing methods for understanding, this is weirdly enough something that came up, I think, in the last episode, the totality, right? <laughs> that came uh, up in the Homestuck episode. <laughs> oh, is that in the Homestuck yes. episode? I knew it came up in something we recorded recently. Yeah. Um, right, but the totality, right, which is the in- entirety of the relations of production in a society. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how does stuff get made? How does it move around? And what are the systems of domination and subordination that that uh, undergird or uh, are parasitic to it, right? Mm-hmm. Who is in power and under what condition and how do they make other people do stuff in terms of the economy? Right. Um, and this is on page 38, uh, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he says, um, this is a reading of Williams. Um, uh, he says this. Um, Williams offers an account of the totality which recognizes the validity of much of the Marxist position. His position is responsive to the exploitative nature of industrial capitalism, to the nature of class formation, and of struggles between classes, and to the reality of class domination. But Williams wants to give a greater measure of determinacy and effectivity to culture. Indeed, as I suggested when talking about the two kinds of experience, he wants to integrate the cultural into what a Marxist would call, quote, the material social practices— End quote, and to assert that there is nothing outside of those material social practices. This is what constitutes a social formation. So, like the big key maneuver here that happens during the Raymond Williams, E.P. Thompson like debates, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what what gets highlighted in Raymond Williams is that culture and the and the things that are kind of uh, circulating, the ideas that circulate in our society and the objects that we create in our kind of media formulations of the world. You know, the experience lived, interpreted, and defined. Those things move the world like the production of corn moves the world. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, th- those things are similar. They're not the same. Mm-hmm. Right? But you cannot ignore, you know, the cultural element. Right. Uh, and, and the question then becomes, and I think we can move on to the next uh, chapter here, right? Uh, or the next lecture 
But the 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 debate then becomes right, like for all the rest of time, people still debate this, right? <laughs> um, what percentage, <laughs> right? Is it fifty fifty? Mm-hmm. Eh, I don't know. Who knows, right? Is it sixty forty? What you know? What is the the relationship between what, in some terms, is called the base and the super superstructure? We'll talk about that in just a minute, or the relation between culture and production, and 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 uh, what is the kind of efficacy of culture on production of the social formation you know key term mm-hmm. social formation mm-hmm. um and like i don't know <laughs> right <laughs> uh it's probably less than people want it to be and it's probably more than uh marxists want it to be right like yeah. at the end of the day mm-hmm. um i you know i don't uh i don't think that like um uh disney's like use of marvel as a cultural force is the final determinant of all human action, right? But it's also not uh, reducible just down to the labor conditions in a Marvel studio, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's, mm-hmm. those two, it's some intermingle. And uh, unfortunately, Stuart Hall does not give us an answer to this uh, because he doesn't know either, right? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I guess, the thing that will come up later and that we should, I, I'll just, like, signpost here, right, is that at the end of the day, it becomes very difficult to describe the totality, mm-hmm. right? Like, you cannot talk about all relations of production in the in global capital mm-hmm. it's impossible mm-hmm. it truly is i mean this is the the jameson problem right like it can get positioned in certain ways and we can put some boundaries on it to talk about it in cer- certain circumstances but it is impossible to grab the whole totality and analyze the whole thing it's too big it's too complicated and the interrelations are too um dynamic mm-hmm. right it's, just ha- it's too much <laughs> it's too much happening all at one time yes um but so for hall you know here in the 1980s and i think he would maintain this the rest of his career what you have to do is you have to find a situation and you have to kind of bracket it and then you have to talk about historically what is actually occurring right that's how you get to the analysis mm-hmm. you know the cultural studies analysis we got to talk about what a thing does at any particular time we can't be historically reductionist like e.p thompson Right, the the his, the historical and the uh, non cultural cannot exhaust what we say, mm-hmm. right? But at the same time, right, you can't ignore any of that. Mm-hmm. You you have to hold it in. It's a hard thing to do. Lecture three: structuralism. Oh boy, <laughs> is this oh boy? That's I mean I guess. Uh, so structuralism uh is sort of like this other like it's an additional ingredient that gets thrown into the the cultural studies mixture right like the previous Mm -hmm. lecture is laying out like how like when we talk about culture just just even as an idea as a term what do we mean and who are the people who have like influenced that uh and then structuralism becomes this additional kind of add-on where one of the critiques that hall makes of of uh, the like the culturalist critics like Williams and Thompson, and I think actually Williams more so uh, than than Thompson because of the the historicism that you mentioned, uh, mm-hmm. is that they tend to be kind of humanist, uh, meaning like uh, this idea that at the end of the day, the human being is empowered and can just like change its conditions. Right. In, in kind of a, a fairly like simple, but uh, the, the term that um, Hall uses that I think is very useful is Promethean way. The idea mm-hmm. that an individuals can kind of rise up, uh, sort of take stock of where they are and then like enact change in the world or like do things in the world that result in in like fairly specific and like desired outcomes. Right. Like. 
uh, that you can uh, uh, sort of extricate yourself from a system or like become aware of a system and then like launch a critique of that system that is going to land in precisely the way that you want and have kind of like the the sort of like overall positive effects that you want. Um, structuralism then becomes a way uh, for Hall of decentering the subject. And this is uh, when I talk about um, how uh, like cultural studies impacts uh, Shakespeare studies. This is a huge thing, right? Because Shakespeare is taken to be up until this point as uh, uh, like Shakespeare is read as uh, the birth of the modern individual, right? Uh, like modernity is routed through Shakespeare. And so like Hamlet is the birth of the subject who uh, exists apart from all the social structures around him uh, and is trying to make a choice about which like how to uh, live in a world where he is not uh, wholly like owned by any of these structures of like family or monarchy or religion or whatever. Uh, how does he sort of like chart his own path through through society? Um and uh, cultural studies comes into Shakespeare studies and starts decentering the subject, as we loved to say in the 80s, uh, and talk about how actually, like, the birth of this modern individual is the result of uh, sort of the concatenations of, like, an emergent capitalism, right? And an emergent industrialism. Uh, people, like, you know, a, a capitalist market needs uh, free laborers and what are the freest laborers but a bunch of people who think that they're atomized individuals ping-ponging around uh making rational decisions so uh structuralism then is a way of emphasizing like the uh the 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 map of relations right among different parts of society or among different uh, uh social institutions that then like produce people that are a part of a society. And for Hall, uh, structuralism comes out of particularly uh, Levi Strauss's work on myth. Uh, but he also traces it up through like structuralist Marxism, which is uh, a chapter that's coming up soon. So I'll, I'll save a little mm -hmm. bit of that. Uh, but for structuralism, uh, another key point for Hall uh, is that it derives much of its method from the structural linguistics of uh, Ferdinand de Saussure, uh, where one of the kind of claims that Saussure makes is that uh, language is arbitrary, right? Like, the words that we use to refer to things are not uh, innately connected to the things that, like, the word and the, the thing are not intimately or inherently connected. Like, the, the, the phonemes that we say, the words that we use or write, uh, are just kind of like an arbitrary thing slapped onto the world in order to make it intelligible. Mm -hmm. um, uh, like some sort of, uh, I don't know, you're watching a film and mm -hmm. uh, a little, I don't know, yellow creature appears mm -hmm. and it says papaya banana mm -hmm. <laughs> and it points to a gun. <laughs> yes. Yes, you go, exactly oh my like god, that. that minion is a papaya banana a gun. <laughs> the unconscious is structured like a minion. Um. <laughs> right, right. But but right, I mean, you know, that that that's a silly example, right? But that that's the um the fundamental claim of structural linguistics, right? That uh uh that structuralism names a uh, a mechanism, right, a structuring principle mm -hmm. rather than uh, and that language works by creating a structuring principle rather than, you know, when when we see a gun, the the word gun emerges from guh, 
which uh, you know uh, <laughs> relates to the size of the barrel, right? Like that's right. not that's not how it's good. Is the natural noise that humans make when they're afraid of being shot? Right, right, right. <laughs> like you know, they're like uh, a relational model <laughs> would suggest that's not the case. And so, what's going on here with with semiotics and structuralism at the same time? Mm-hmm. Kind of the emergence of both of those is the um, the recognition of big pattern, big structure, um, and the arbitrariness of structure. Uh, that kind of gets filled in with other stuff mm-hmm. um, rather than any kind of innate connection to whatever. Right. Um, and so uh, one of the consequences of this for structuralism is kind of like a broader school of thought, which is also it's not just, you know, coming out of linguistics uh, for Levi Strauss. Obviously, there's like an anthropological dimension here. It goes into sociology and we're going to talk about how it gets uh, picked up by uh, French Marxism as well. Um uh, but one of the consequences of this, as Hall points out, is that uh, structuralism tends to take uh, this arbitrary uh, nature of the structuring principle, um, and in so doing, uh, might end up a, like approaching the social itself as uh, purely arbitrary in content, uh, but universal in structure. And he, in fact, has a, a pretty interesting uh, thing where he reads through like uh, Levi Strauss at the beginning of kind of his project on myths and then reads him at the end and shows how at the beginning you can see Levi Strauss uh, trying to uh, like divine like the structuring principle, but also note kind of like the historical forces that uh, led into the formation of this principle. Mm-hmm. Um, and then by the end, he's just like, oh, yeah, no, we've like uncovered the structure behind everything. And this is how like mythological structures work and and so on and so forth. Um, and so, uh, you know, on the one hand for Hall, uh, this kind of the, the idea of a, a big sort of like uh extra human structuring principle uh, is good because it undermines like typical like romantic obsessions with like novelty and originality uh, and sort of like the creative Promethean individual. Uh, You know, it suggests that people are the products of the structures around them uh, rather than, uh, you know, just kind of like arbitrarily making these things up and like setting them out into the world. Uh, But one of the other consequences then uh, is that this kind of structuralist uh, bent will, uh, as it as it excavates the structure in the thing that it is studying, it has a tendency to calcify and universalize that structure. Right, the structure mm-hmm. itself like wiggles out of history and just becomes a thing that happens, whereas history is sort of like I don't know, set dressing on the structure. Ad break. Ad break. Patreon.com/slash/RangeTouch is where you can go to support the show, and you should. It takes a lot of time to make. Uh, we've been making it for nearly 50 episodes. That's five O episodes. Mm-hmm. If you go there and you support us at $3 a month, you can get in the notes for all 50 of those episodes. If you are, say, a graduate student who's looking for a shortcut <laughs> in your life, well, you can get some shortcuts there. If you just want to know the other stuff that we've wrote, or that we've wrote, that we've written down, uh, that uh, that uh, didn't make it to the episode. That's also where that shows up in the notes, and there's plenty of that kind of stuff too. If you're looking for maybe a little bit more of a dense reading guide to reading through the book yourself, or if you just want to support the show, it takes a lot of time and effort and work and recording and editing and reading books and things like that and buying books. Uh, so uh, yeah, if you want to do that, that'd be really helpful. We really appreciate it. Patreon.com/slash/rangedtouch. The link is also in the description below the episode on whatever you are listening to this on. Speaking of listening to this on, if you're listening to it on Apple Podcast, leave us a review of five stars. Uh, if you do that, I'll read 
If you leave a little funny review, I'll read it on the show. And I'm going to pull that up right now <laughs> while Michael tells you about a special thing that he wants to promote. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, so if you have uh, listened to this show and you are interested in hearing some or hearing, not really, but uh, reading some actual kind of like game study stuff that I've had a hand in uh, just a couple months ago, a special issue of Borrowers and Lenders, the Journal of Shakespeare uh, and Appropriation, uh, had a special issue that I uh, was the guest editor for. It is called Shakespeare and Gaming. Uh, and there's like a whole collection of uh, really interesting essays of Shakespeare scholars uh, kind of trying to work through what are the things that happen when Shakespeare comes up in uh, not just video games, but also like analog tabletop games. Uh, we got a really nice uh, uh, selection of people working on, on different aspects of this, right? Uh, questions relevant to this episode, right? Questions of uh, Shakespeare as high culture versus low culture uh, uh, in like the game Silent Hill 3, uh, but also uh, the collaborative nature and the theatrical nature of Shakespeare tabletop games uh, and sort of like the ways that Shakespeare has indelibly shaped the the way that monarchical fantasies are structured in fiction, uh, getting to all that through uh, like Dragon Age, uh, but also uh, Shakespeare's like gamer girls, right? Like uh, uh, the way that uh, we had a, a, a wave of kind of feminist, feministy uh, Shakespeare games that came around about a decade ago uh, that also, weirdly enough, coincided with kind of the big reactionary blow up of gaming as a space. So, you know, games and Shakespeare all interpenetrated together. Uh, and I was lucky enough to uh, be brought in uh through BNL to edit that special issue, and I got to read all sorts of cool stuff and give cool feedback. And uh, you should just check that out. You can, you know, search for it. I would give you the uh, the URL, but reading a URL on a podcast is a fool's game. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. So it's uh, I'll borrowers put it in the description and lenders down below. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Borrowers and lenders. Uh, uh, thirteen three. So check that out. Yep. I'll I'll put it down in the description below. A little bit behind the curtain, I got denied from the special issue. Uh, yeah, I, I'm going to I'm going to air my grievances on on Mike. Yeah, I mean, I did uh, kind of I was going to write about those plays in Final Fantasy nine. But uh, oh, I forgot the other tonight, thing. We actually there's tonight. also a game in there. So check that out. Uh, I, I had got I managed to get uh, Cat Manning, uh, but there's a game there that you can play. I just noticed that because for some reason this got mentioned in Axios. <laughs> When cool. I was Googling to, like, make sure that it would bring up the, the special issue. <laughs> like right, Ax right, right, right. Right, Axios uh, wrote about the special issue and specifically about, like, Cat's game. So, um... <laughs> like, Totillo's newsletter column thing? Uh, no, Peter Allen Clark. Oh, okay. Interesting. Fascinating. I was um, not expecting that. <laughs> yeah, me neither. Well, um, th thanks, Axios. Yeah. <laughs> uh, still in the ad break. Uh, we have a little link down in the description below as well as on our website, rangetouch.com, for you to go to our bookshop page. Uh, if you want to buy the books that we talk about here on the show and you don't want to give Amazon money uh, and you would like to buy from a smaller bookstore and have them kind of uh, facilitate your order, uh, we're a bookshop partner. You can go to bookshop.org um, and you can find uh, Range Touch on there. But there's a Game Study Study Buddies list. And so if you want to buy next month's book, you can go on there and it's comparable prices, maybe a little bit more, but ultimately going through uh, not Amazon. So that's pretty sweet. We get a kickback from that. We like that. That's rad. 
but more importantly, we're able to, you know, kind of collate some stuff. We've also got other book recommendations up there, things like that. You can also go to rangetouch.com to see all of our other shows. Uh, just King Things, where we read through the works of Stephen King in publication order. Uh, Too Much Future, which is going to start again soon with our Fallout 4 uh, episode uh, or uh, series uh, or uh, season. Who cares? And uh, <laughs> some other stuff that we do as well, like Homestuck Made This World. Um, here's a five-star review off of the Game Study Study Buddies uh, Apple podcast page. This is from The Beatles Were Ruined by Kids Bob. My boys, Sweet Michael and Cam, are always expanding my mind with interesting discussion and how I think about games in both general and specific ways in regard to design and approach. Also, I'm always doing my part to spread the word about it. I tell everyone to give it a listen because there's topics for everyone. Most recently, I recommended the pod to a cast member of Riverdale. Ooh. Please do a Riverdale podcast. <laughs> Look, if we can get a confirmation on this Riverdale thing, you know, if they, if uh, Archie, Archie tweets about the show, maybe we'll think about it. <laughs> Uh, but five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Leave a little funny thing. Maybe I'll read it. I'm looking forward to the the future where Jughead on an episode of Riverdale talks about how he doesn't believe in immersion. Uh, yeah. If anyone doesn't believe in immersion, it's Jughead. For sure. All right. We're going back to the episode. Bye. He talks quite often about how structuralism and then Marxist structuralism in just a minute, you know, uh, produces a, uh, non-humanist. Right. Or, or, you know, uh, it it is against humanism, this kind of centrality of the human um, and focuses much more on structure and how people get produced, as you're just saying. Right. Uh, But uh, he's not using Mm -hmm. anti-humanist, which is eventually the word gets stapled on to all through Sarah. Right. He's anti-humanist. Yes. Um, And the same thing as as, uh, Foucault. Right. Who also gets, uh, uh, I think, later on a critique of Foucault. That's pretty, pretty good. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, but yeah, just just to note, if you've ever seen that word. That's kind of what's going on with that word, right? It is, it is a anti-humanist describes a uh, looking to broader structures mm-hmm. that do not center the individual human as a kind of, as you're saying, romantic subject, right? Who goes and breaks the world over their knee and produces things out of things, but rather as the kind of end point or the product of a big machine that does stuff. Um, and we're going to talk about ISAs in a minute. Um, that that That's part of that. Uh, um, production in um, all through Sarah. Mm-hmm. Lecture four. I'm just going to read my summary for this one. I'm just going to okay, read it straight sure. up. So lecture four is called rethinking the base and superstructure. Um, and this is, this will get us through it. Uh, Marx is not actually consistent in his discussion of the base and superstructure ideas, which show up several times throughout his work with different inflections. Some theorists like Althusser, more on whom soon tend to claim to have found or recovered a kind of true Marx or like, you know, the, the kind of like ultimate form of Marx, uh, when in fact they have done selective reading of the corpus and smoothed out important ambiguities and limitations in Marx's thought. So traditional understandings suggest Marx thought the base, the mode of production by which a society lives, was wholly determinant of its superstructure, superseding human action or choice at every point. However, elsewhere, Marx says that while all humans are born into circumstances they don't choose, they choose how to live in those circumstances. 
Hall says that Marx under-theorized the relationship between ideology and material circumstance and detects in uh, Marxist determination a split along uh, what he identifies as levels of abstraction. So in the first sense of uh, like the broader determination, Marx uses determination to outline how our historical circumstances are not of our own choosing, right? The, uh, you are born into a world that you had no choice in, in sort of how it turned out. Um, but that happens in order to kind of arrive at the second sense that at this juncture, uh, there is still a choice to be made about how to live in a world of limited options as an agent in time. Uh, and this actually opens the door to like understanding, for instance, how capitalism outside the context of European industrialization found ways of imposing itself in colonial contexts where strategies of domination varied widely, right? Ideologies do not produce themselves uh, sort of self-identically. Uh, they produce themselves with variation, and those variations allow them to grapple into different contexts. Um, so sort of uh, uh, corollary to all of this, uh, Hall says, the base and superstructure are not static, nor are they simply related, meaning there is no one change in the base, which results in like the total reformation of the superstructure, uh, nor is there like one superstructural change that would uh, reorganize the base. I mean, that's, yes, that's a very good summary of the chapter. <laughs> I mean, that's why uh, I read it, because it's kind of it's kind of beefy and it just lets me get it all out there. Yeah, uh, I do like that Stuart Hall makes fun of false consciousness. <laughs> yeah. So like, the, like there's a lot like of stuff that I'm cutting clowns out here. on it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and basically right that that, um, you know, the notion of false consciousness, uh, I, you know, weirdly enough, it goes around every generation of Marxists must produce a theory of false consciousness that is bad, right? Like, <laughs> like there is a, ev everyone um, who, you know, turns uh, 18 and gets their first copy of uh, Capital Volume 1, as we mm -hmm. all do mm -hmm. in the United States, uh, you, have been, uh, you immediately come to the idea that everyone else is stupid and you're smart. <laughs> right. <laughs> they do that when you do your, like, uh, uh, compulsory register for the draft. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, they give you Capital Volume 1. False consciousness... Uh, as a notion is a way of saying that uh, classes do not actually apprehend the class relation and the relation of production. In fact, they often identify with the wrong class uh, uh, um, uh, ideology, mm -hmm. right? So uh, the working class apprehends their uh, condition in the way that the bourgeoisie does or the way that the upper classes do. And so the idea of like the dignified worker who toils all day long to benefit the factory boss, that becomes valorized. That becomes good, right? Because they have the wrong idea about what, the, what their appropriate class relation is mm -hmm. uh, when in fact the workers are the people who do the production in society, right? Um, and so then you have to like develop workers consciousness or whatever. Um, uh, but, um, and Hall is saying that's insufficient. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So th this is, it is so funny to me. So he says this, uh, it's on 83. I wonder how it is that all the people I know are absolutely convinced that they are not in false consciousness, but can tell at the drop of a hat that everybody else is. <laughs> I have never understood how anyone can advance in the field of political organization and struggle by ascribing an absolute distinction between those who can see through transparent surfaces, through the complexity of social relations, to the base, and who consequently act according to the real structure, and the vast number of people throughout the history of the world who are imprisoned, who are 
judgmental dopes, and who just can't tell what things are. They live their lives from day to day. They get their wages and salaries. They buy things. They eat. They raise families. They travel about. And in all of this, they just can't see reality. Their own interests are what they ought to think and do. Indeed, I have always undertaken to move from the opposite position, assuming that all ideologies which have ever organized men and women organically have something true about them. They have truth that people recognize. They really allow us to grasp and define what our experience is. Of course, they might not tell us the full truth. They may accentuate certain things at the expense of others. They may be partial in the understanding which they give, but they are not false in the sense of being simply lies, misrepresentations, or misrecognitions. Consequently, false consciousness is not an adequate theorization of the problem of class positioning and class ideologies. And it's like, damn. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, yes, right? <laughs> I mean, this is what, uh, the, I, you know, I, we got a little bit of, of uh, feedback. This is a while back. I don't even remember which episode it was, right? But uh, in our discussion of ideology at some point, I just remember the the kind of aftermath of it, um, where, uh, you know, we got a little bit of feedback that was like, well, you say everyone was is within ideology. Uh, and, I, you know, to be ideo- ideological is a little bit different, you know, than having that. And it's because I come from the Stuart Hall position, right? Like, everyone's ideology speaks some truth about the world, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I do think that there are tools and methods, right? You know, I'm a little, I'm not a structuralist, but I do think that you got to read the world a little bit, right? Uh, or, you know, at least I'm not a hard structuralist, maybe. Uh, but, you know, there's tools and methods that help you get a little bit of broader perspective on things, and you can compare and contrast ideologies. But at the end of the day, we're all in ideology, right? Right. Like, mm-hmm. it just depends on which one you've got and what the kind of tools and what your justifications are. I mean, maybe I'm a little bit just of a leotardian here, right? Like, yeah. you got to develop judgment, you got to use it, um, and you got to create some precepts that you stick to. Uh, you know, that would be the thing I would staple on to Stuart, what Stuart Hall is saying here. But... Uh, you know, I just really love that passage. And I would say that in a general sense, the book is full of these passages. It's full of just like very clear distillations of a policy position mm-hmm. <laughs> of like how to do a thing in the world. Right. Uh, and I like that a lot. Um, lecture five. Yeah. Uh, structuralist Marxism. Uh, oh, you know what? Hold on. Oh. Give me one second. I'm so sorry. At the end, at the very end of this uh, last uh, lecture, lecture four. Uh, he says that the analysis of cultural studies is, quote, about actual societies in real historical periods, end quote. And like if if you're going to have like a like a statement, you know, on the poster. Yeah. You know, and, and it's your birthday for cultural studies. It's <laughs> actual societies in real historical periods. Yes. Like not things you believe <laughs> about them. Right. Or not things that you assert about them, mm-hmm. but actual people. Right. In real time. Mm-hmm. Uh, very important. Hey, welcome to Homestuck Made This World. Uh, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, lecture five, Marxist structuralism. Uh, uh, structuralist Marxism. Or maybe it is Marxist structuralism. I don't know. Did I write, did I write it down? Maybe. maybe. I, might have, I, I mean, I might have written it down wrong. It tells you my uh, predilections here. Yeah, we wrote it. Da- oh, this is fascinating. We wrote it down in opposite ways. So hold right. on. What does the book say? Well, I'm right. Uh, I have it in front of me and I'm correct. Yes, you uh, were and correct. So therefore, you're within ideology and I am not. Right. Congratulations on being a historical dupe, Michael. Damn, we found my <laughs> false consciousness. I know you were structuralist all along. <sighs> the ultimate slip. <laughs> if only the unconscious weren't structured like a language. Whoa. Uh... So yeah, this this uh, lecture is basically like uh, the Louis Althusser Power Hour. Uh, yeah, it's rad. It's awesome. Like, I'm into it. If you have, I mean, if you don't know who Althusser is, he is a 
a hugely important and influential uh, French Marxist of sort of the, the you know, the post-war period. Uh, this is another thing that I had to learn a lot about in grad school uh, because, like, the, the uh, Althusserian idea of, like, interpolation in uh, uh, the formation of the subject is – uh, well, was still really going when I was there, or at least it was going for the the questions that I was asking, which was, you know, kind of like the history of humanism, and particularly how humanism has operated as a, a force in literary criticism. But uh, that the thing that you need to know about Althusser is that he is going hard for that decentering of the subject thing that we talked about. Um, and Hall is very interested in a lot of Althusser's ideas, right? Sort of like positive on them, like thinks they're good insights, but, uh, in a very characteristic move for Hall, if you've been listening to the episode up to this point, um, mm -hmm. never like always says, here's what's good about this. And here's the stuff you should like quibble with, or rather here's the stuff I, Stuart Hall want to quibble with, right? He never, right. uh, uh, incorporates something as is. He always has uh, a revision to make or something to point out. Um, and so, uh, Althusser, who kind of, uh, uh, you know, re-understands, uh, society as a bunch of, like, you know, anti-humanist, meaning, like, uh, uh, non-human, inhuman, uh, uh, like, social circuits, right? Things like, uh, we'll talk about it, uh, more in the next coming lectures, uh, but, you know, things like, uh, uh, your ideology doesn't just come from nowhere. It gets taught to you by your school and by your church and by your workplace, and those are all things that exist kind of outside of the individual uh, and outside of, uh, you know, individual's desires. So for Althusser, uh, society is this complex machine, uh, like a, a, a production line uh, that just produces people, right? And it produces people with particular uh, ideological, like, inclinations or outlooks, Um but the thing that we need to correct for, uh, as Hall would put it, uh, is that Althusser falls headfirst into the elimination of the different levels of abstraction in determination that he's already pointed out, that when Marx talks about determination, he means it in different ways in different contexts. And Althusser's kind of reading method is very much this move of like... Going back to Marx, reading through everything, and then picking the parts where Marx is agreeing with me and saying this is the true Marx, right? Like, the Althusserian move is to say that, like, Marx was a structuralist, he just didn't know it yet because he didn't have the tools to be a structuralist. Uh, you know, the, the way of thinking hadn't come about yet, but I've gone back to Marx and I've uncovered how, in fact, he was a structuralist before his time, and that implicitly, uh, you know, totally validates my uh, project of Marxist structuralism, right? Because I am now being true to Marx in a way that uh, uh, other people who aren't doing structuralist Marxism uh, are not. Yeah, it's a revisionist project that simply claims to be uh, finding the truth. Right. Right. Uh, it It's revision that claims to be reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, which is very funny enough, right? I mean, that that's what we're reading, right? Cultural Studies 1983 is a book that is, you know, kind of a revision in the sense of it's telling a very linear narrative uh, about some things that are not necessarily linear. Uh, but that's also like the beauty of storytelling, right? Mm -hmm. that, that That's how it works. Marx oscillates between different levels of abstraction, mm -hmm. right? So like sometimes he's talking about an individual factory and how it works. You know, you read Capital Volume 1, that, that's happening constantly. But then in the next bit, right, or in the, uh, you know, uh, Grandisa or whatever, right, uh, he will be 
zoomed way out to as far away as humanly possible. I mean, like, be like, look at these little dots running around. Isn't it interesting how that happens, right? You mm-hmm. know, even reading the chapter on the commodity and understanding how the commodity works, the difficulty of teaching that and uh, in, in teaching kind of the Marxist understanding of the commodity is that that chapter zooms in and out uh, constantly, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it is it's talking about in the most abstract forms the way that economics works, and then it zooms in to, like, how things are made. Right. Uh, and so it becomes difficult to kind of track. And and what Hall says is that Althusser takes all these oscillations of scale and oscillations of abstraction and treats them as if they are uniformly flat. Right. So mm-hmm. like every statement is at the same level of abstraction within uh, Marx for Althusser or in Althusser's revision. Um, and, uh, you know, that it, it, as you said, it produces like an interesting effect. And I think that's a useful reading of all through Sarah, an inter- interesting way of understanding it. Uh, Hall actually introduces his own reading of Marx in this chapter, which is pretty interesting. You know, he does it by way of, um, engaging with all through Sarah. Marx is interested in, in what Hall calls discontinuities, mm-hmm. right? So like where are places where things don't quite line up with one another? Right. Relations to production, the way that people interact with one another, the way that systems run into each other, the way that like national economies hit each other in finance, whatever, right? Marx is interested in that because when you when the thing doesn't work, it tells you how the thing normally does work, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but but what's fascinating, or what the thing is for for Hull here, is that all through Sarah um, resolves that by just calling these the breaks, and then saying, well, the the discontinuities are the places where capitalism is weakest or where the problems of capitalism is are most easily seen and then that's a place where you can intervene mm-hmm. right and then what hall actually says is that well okay maybe sure like that could be the case sometimes but also those discontinuities tell us about day-to-day life right mm-hmm. they they tell us that like and, and why hall says that marx is interested in in discontinuities they tell you about the navigations that are involved in the everyday lived experience of human beings right um the discontinuities are gotten over very easily capitalism works pretty efficiently constantly right yeah. not most efficiently as the capitalist might claim right but it operates and it keeps happening uh and even in instances where it looks like it is about to break um you know in the late 19th century uh in you know the 1930s maybe in the united states uh, and uh, in you know in any given major international recession in the 1970s or say oh 2007 whatever mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, capitalism has proven itself to be highly resilient and moldable right it's very good at uh, uh, eating the resistant movements that are in it or the, or the struggling movements that are in it and then uh, making them a part of its tapestry you know it's it's kind of absorptive nature. And so, you know, Hall says, well, that's a thing that maybe you should think about more, right? right. Like, like what, what is it about discontinuity that capitalism is so easily, uh, it, it, it uh, shows those discontinuities, it highlights them in its operation, and then it also resolves them, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it is not simply a case of, resol- or of, of um, aggravating the contradictions, right? It is understanding how the contradictions happen and how they get resolved. And that's kind of what's happening here with Hall's reading of Althusser. He's looking at all these concepts in Althusser about discontinuity, about uh, the flattening of abstraction, the flattening into one kind of neat, clean, smooth system and saying, well, in the Marx, it's not that smooth. And in day-to-day life, it's not that smooth. And the system that you've created that is so smooth has to... Uh, polish all of these real ripples out of it. And so what happens when we don't do that, right? Mm-hmm. Cultural studies takes the idea that there's a big system, but doesn't try to remove the ripples. Right. 
mm-hmm. right? Like it, it holds to the fact that there are real discontinuities and real ripples and that people are negotiating ideology in their day-to-day lives. And then it's not clean and consistent and fine, right? They're not, as, as Stuart Hall was saying, it's not as if like everyone's just a big rube running through the pinball machine all day long, right? Mm-hmm. Like things are happening. Things that are real <laughs> are happening. Uh, people have real ideologies and they have real moments of, of, um, resistant or struggle resistance or struggle or uh anti-capitalist instinct or uh, unhappiness in their situation and the notable thing is that capitalism is very good at accommodating those things mm-hmm. and it's very good at folding those back into it um he obviously doesn't get there here right that's not what this chapter is about but that's his kind of critique of or his maneuver within marxist structuralism is that it gives you a very good big structure quite literally to understand everything in but it does not pay close enough attention to the actual operations of capitalism within it and the operations of human beings that's what cultural studies gets us Mm -hmm. Um, even if it does ultimately pan out in political things and that's what Stuart hall is going to tell us right like by the end of these lectures in 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 the last instance right (laughs) um for Stuart hall it needs to pay off in something someone can do about it Right. So there's a really interesting thing here that I just think is notable in a, in a way I'd not heard it phrased before. So he's talking about E.P. Thompson, who we've talked about already, and the kind of um, response to Althusser that, that happened uh, with E.P. Thompson. Because what occurs after Althusser begins doing all of this work is that uh, Althusser's mode of theory... Right. Like, and, and the notion of theory, the idea that there's intellect, that, that you can do intellectual production, that in its creation is an intervention into the system. Mm-hmm. Right. That mm-hmm. thinking the thing and then doing uh, uh, academic labor work or not even academic, but intellectual labor work, that in and of itself is an interruption to the system. Um, he gets there through the term of uh, or through the concept of relative autonomy, the idea that one can have a uh, intellectual position that does not align with one's class position. Right. Um, that That's how he does that. Uh, it's not, we don't have to get too into that, but that's how we go. Um, but so he basically Hall uh, analyzes this debate that happens or this kind of discussion that happens between E.P. Thompson and Althusser in the New Left Review, the, the kind of publication that, that really uh, represents a lot of these movements in Marxism, the kind of breaking from traditional Marxism into a new augmented mode in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and he says that there's this big fight, and basically it comes down to E.P. Thompson's historical mode of understanding what actually happened being supplanted by Althusser's theoretical mode, right? Which is that it's more important to theorize about the thing and create a kind of system, a systemic analysis of the thing. It's more important to do that than to get into the nitty-gritty of, like, sociological documentation from the past. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, Althusser wins. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, ultimately, in the theoretical tradition in the sixties or in the sixties and seventies, intellectual tradition, theory theorization wins out as a way of engaging with these problems, as opposed to historical or sociological analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, so he says this. Therefore, the political project that is taken up in the late 1960s and 1970s is increasingly organized in a space defined principally by Althusser, giving rise to a whole range of political movements that claim to be fundamentally anti-humanist. So actually, this term is being used in this book. I don't know why I totally blanked it out of my head. It's used a million times on this page. (laughs) Uh, Continuing the quote. That is the sense in which the poverty of theory, so 
Thompson's book that he's uh, publishing to respond to Althusser. Thompson talks about the Althusserian tradition as not only opposite to the emphases and imperatives of his own work, but as a political project that arises in the space where his project ought to have been. That is why he sees himself fighting a rather personal battle against Althusserian anti-humanism. It is a confrontation between two incommensurate Marxist traditions which, by the way that they have been articulated historically, have come to be opposed to one another and which therefore present an absolutely exclusive choice as either one or the other. But that is exactly the same kind of choice in reverse that Althusserians tried to present to people who were hoping to learn from them. Perhaps the only way out of this logic is to recognize that it is impossible to sum up the Althusserian moment without talking about its negative and positive effects, its rich generative possibilities on which so much else has been constructed, and the deformations of both theoretical and political practice that have been its unfortunate legacy. Let me conclude this lecture then by offering some general reflections on and summations of the theoretical gains which flow from Althusser's break with classical Marxism. Althusser persuaded me, and I remain persuaded, that Marx conceptualizes the ensemble of relations which make up a whole society, Marx's totality, as essentially a complex structure, not a simple one. Hence the relationship within that totality between its different levels, the economic, the political, and the ideological, as Althusser would have it, cannot be simple or immediate, uh, a simple or immediate one. Thus, the notions of simply reading off the different kinds of social contradictions at different levels of social practice in terms of one governing principle of social and economic organization, i.e. the mode of production, or of reading the different levels of a social formation in terms of a one-to-one correspondence between practices, are neither useful nor are they ways in which Marx, in the end, conceptualized the social totality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a long quotation. It's on 118, 119. But the reason I read that is that I think that's a great summation of like what's going on with Althusser here. And the other one is that in uh, 1983, uh, Stuart Hall very cleanly told us why it is pointless to point out people's contradictions on Twitter. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> but they say one thing and they do another. <laughs> well, look, buddy, welcome to capitalism, right? Right. Like, welcome to ideology, right? Right. Um, I, I cannot believe that uh, uh, that Stuart Hall dismantled hashtag resistance <laughs> Twitter uh, in uh, in 1983. But here we go. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, you know, I just I thought that was funny. Um, but but that also is like a critical thing here, right? Like right. again, I, we're all in ideology. We all have things that it tells us and things that we take from it. Um, and the contradictions are not things that. They, they don't rise to the level of, like, knowledge. Right, 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 right. right. Um, you, you can't tell someone they are wrong because they apprehend the world incorrectly and then expect them to get in line. Um, that's just not how it works. Mm-hmm. I guess the thing we've got to say here, uh, it's important to say every time, and I, I forget that people don't know it, uh, all through Sarah murdered his wife. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like a big... Thing, a big problem with all through Sarah. All through Sarah murdered his wife, uh, strangled her to death, and uh, uh, went to prison for it, and uh, people don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. That's a thing to know. Um, you can kind of do with that what you will. People take different levels of uh, a hard line on that. Um, I think it's impossible to... Uh, you, historically, you cannot ignore the impact that through Sarah has on everything that we're talking about. Where we come right now in terms of like the way that we do cultural analysis broadly, even outside of Marxism, impossible to think without Althusser. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's a straight up murderer. Yep. Um, and uh, you gotta gotta deal with that. Gotta come to terms with that in some kind of way. Lecture six. Ideology and ideological struggle. Wow. Woo. 
Uh, so Hall essentially says, you know, that uh, Althusser is right to point out that uh, ideology is reproduced in- institutionally, like I said, you know, through uh, uh, the church and the school in your workplace. Uh, ISAs. Yes, ideological state apparatuses, right? The 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 things in society uh, supported or like maintained by the state, or rather, like maybe uh, uh, the state allows them spaces to be, uh, are also these things that teach you ideologies. Um, the critique that Hall has of this, right, is that uh, ISA theory does not do a whole lot to explain how a multitude of evidently distinct institutions operating on their own agendas uh, can nevertheless reproduce together a single structure of dominance, right? Uh, like, uh, the it doesn't work like in kind of the conspiracist mode right it doesn't work like that where there is like some central authority that is writing out the ideology and then that ideology gets telegraphed to your church and to your school and to your workplace and then your boss like reads like what they need to do to teach you the ideology and then they turn around and teach it to you uh people like re- uh, uh you know connect spontaneously or seemingly of their own volition to ideological concepts uh and they do this in a multitude of places that are also in their own way opposed right your uh church may in some way uh be opposed to your workplace not in in like like your church doesn't think you need to work but like you know uh uh there can be friction between these different institutions and so how is it then hall asks uh that we could like produce a, a kind of single structure of dominance which is another critique of althusser in the sense that uh Hall says that Althusser's understanding of ideology is ultimately functionalist. Like anything that could possibly happen in ideology and sort of the Althusserian model is uh, somehow like caused by and anticipated by uh, the already extant ideology. And so it's almost like immediately recuperated. And this is, you know, the the big critique that um, or not even critique, let's say complaint uh, that you say uh, constantly as a grad student when you're reading a lot of Marx is me and all my friends being like, oh, I get it. Like, I get it. Right. Resistance is impossible. I'm already interpolated. OK, <laughs> like, yeah. And 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 weirdly enough, it's the it's the weird thing, right? Of like, Marx doesn't really say that, right? Like right. that that's like weirdly enough, we are like so downstream for the Althusserian moment, right? That it's it's um we are trained to read for the consistencies in Marx and not the breaks, right? right? And not the discontinuities. And and Hall here is saying like don't be the grad student, right? Like, <laughs> like be really read Marx and pay attention to what's happening within Marx's text, as opposed to the, the uh, consistency of theory that we're trained to read within, which is all downstream from all through Sarah, right? Mm-hmm. Like the way that we look for continuity, this, this is the trouble of trying to go back and read, you know, particularly French theory, uh, you know, of some of the stuff that I like, you know, like Bataille, right? Uh-huh. Like Bataille is actually truly a system that cannot be convened into one whole. Right. Right. Like his work cannot be structured into a clean universalizable system. Right. 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 Absolutely not. <laughs> um, because he didn't want it to be. Yeah. Right? Like that's he, the point. He, <laughs> right. And he's talking about lots of different systems. Right. And so there's this kind of frustration that occurs for lots of people. Right. Um, it, that, that has to do with, again, the culture of the historical moment that we are in, that we are downstream, that we are after Althusser and this universalizing principle, the structuring principle, the structuralist 
uh, impulse, right? Mm-hmm. To make it all one thing. Uh, when in reality, you know, as Hall would tell us, the, the world is not one thing, right? Like the, the world is a bunch of different things. It's material moving around. This is me being a revisionist on Hall a little bit, right? But like <laughs> it's material and ideology moving around and it's contradictory and you got to like uh, make peace with that contradiction. Maybe not try to turn it into like a smooth system. But sorry, you were talking and I, I got in to talk about uh, contradictory theory. But yes, I mean, I, same same thing happened in graduate school, right? <laughs> um, of like, golly gee whiz, why doesn't this all fit together? It should fit together. And 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 by making it fit together, we are reduced... And, and, by making it fit together and making it say a thing it doesn't really say, right? Mm-hmm. We are doing the bad thing. Right, right. <laughs> and then getting older, I, I think, you know, and coming out of graduate school and not being in that condition anymore is actually good for you, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, because it it forces you to be like, and reading Stuart Hall is good for you, because it forces you to be like, oh, maybe, maybe that was the bad impulse, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, uh, I mean, Hall puts this actually pretty well, and I'm closely paraphrasing him from page 137 here, right? Althusser reduces ideology to the existence of the subject itself, right? Like, that is, by virtue of being, like, a thinking, cognizant being, congratulations, ideology's got its hooks in you, uh, and, like, that's it, we're done for, right? Um uh, but it misses that while uh, all practices are within ideology, it does not follow that practices are nothing but ideology, right? That's the way right. that Hall puts it. Uh, and sort of furthermore, uh, because of the Althusserian tendency to really smooth out these differentiations, uh, it, it, it allows us to forget that many ideological outlooks or like sort of inflections, right? Like we might structure this so that here's like a group, like an umbrella of ideologies of a bunch of people who are oriented in similar ways, but have like key differences between them. Um, like ideology has texture, right? Ideology has a difference within itself uh, and people like individuals will maneuver among ideological positions like throughout the course of a single day and certainly throughout the course of a lifetime um, as they like make novel connections uh, and try to make sense of their experience. And so an example here that Hall gives is that uh, religion, right, is a cultural formation that takes on very different resonances at not only different points in history, but at different points in a culture. And the example that he gives is Rastafarianism, which is a working through and sort of like revision or like, um, um, you know, sort of it takes like a, a form of Christianity that is imposed by imperialism and slavery and, uh, explodes it, right. Rereads it from the inside out to become this kind of liberatory, uh, religious philosophy. This right. is, uh, weirdly enough, this is like the second time Rastafarianism has come up, like a, a historical reading of Rastafarianism has come up in my life in the past six months. Oh. Um, I had a student last semester who was like very into, a Jamaican student who was very interested in talking about the history of Rastafarianism and all that kind of stuff. So mm. I've learned a lot about it, weirdly enough. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just a little bit outside of my day-to-day experience, right? Not right. a lot of Rastafarians near me. But uh, I, yeah, I thought it was like a fascinating little thing and a fascinating read to here of of what are the negotiations that historically rastafarianism has gone through you know what are the discourses that it it has engaged with in order to kind of make its case and to operate within dominant uh ideologies in order to like become a force you Mm -hmm. know to do things in the world um because is this here i don't think i actually wrote it down um no, I don't think I did. But there, there's, I think it's in this chapter. I think it's in the back half of this lecture where he's talking about how 
you know, uh, Marxism, you know, he's writing in 83, so you got to keep that in mind. But uh, Marxism often takes like, you know, some base parameters and then operates from them. So, for example, religion has no place within like the political system. Um, And so Hall says like, well, if you if you begin from the position that like religion can never be part of of a political moment or, you Mm -hmm. know, like a political organization, then you are radically ignoring how people actually live. Yep. Right. Because mm-hmm. that because religion is very important to many people. Um, and so if you are interested in winning, right, or if you are interested in having your ideas engaged with, uh, you have to make them compatible with people's existing ideologies. Right. Right. You can't blank slate people and just hope that they show up. Right. You have to do other stuff uh, that engages with them. And uh, and so, you know, Rastafarianism becomes one of the examples uh, of that, of how different ideological positions meld together to produce some. Uh, other thing this is also uh, just everything around like 148 to 150 is some of the best stuff in this book i think oh yeah so this is where he also talks about how uh, a racial identity is uh you know going to be like in in broad strokes right if we say if we look at uh like uh the caribbean the united states and the united kingdom we can talk about like blackness as a racialized identity and that holds together in the sense that in all three of those places People, if you say something about blackness as a racialized identity, people are going to know basically what you're talking about. But then when you get into the specifics of how that operates in each of those places, they are extremely, extremely different. Right. Uh, it, but then they have like, uh, you know, he's doing this really great kind of oscillation of levels, right? Mm-hmm. Like in in every cultural and historical moment, it's different. Race operates differently, mm-hmm. right? Like there's no universalizable structure in its actual operations as practices, right? Mm -hmm. But the structuring principles can be bigger, right? They're not universal, right? Right. But they are shared, right? They they become kind of a... um, a set of parameters that everything operates within, right? So he talks specifically, it's on 151, he talks specifically about the term black Mm -hmm. and what does that mean, right? And how does it get used? Um, And he calls it a semantic field. Mm -hmm. Um, um, So he says this on 151, it is important to look at the semantic field within which any particular ideological change signifies. Marx, Marx reminds us that the ideas of the past weigh like a nightmare on the brains of the living. The moment of historical transformation is critical to, for any semantic field. These semantic zones take shape at particular historical periods. For example, the formation of bourgeois individualism in the 17th and 18th centuries in England. They leave the traces of their connections long after the social relations to which they referred to have disappeared. These traces can be reactivated at a later stage, even when the discourses are fragmented as coherent or organic ideologies. Common sense thinking contains what Gramsci called the traces of ideology without an inventory. Consider, for example, the trace of religious thinking in a world which believes itself to be secular, in which therefore invests the sacred and secular ideas. Although the logic of the religious interpretation of terms has been broken, the religious repertoire continues to trail through history, usable in a variety of new historical contexts, reinforcing and underpinning more apparently modern ideas. Mm-hmm. Right. And so he's like, look, we, we're, we're, you're in history, bro. Like you're inheriting <laughs> ideas. Guess what? Um, and this actually comes after a fairly lengthy discussion of the um, uh, kind of inaugurating moment of slavery um, yeah. and, and how that is a determinant. It just goes over like four pages. So I can't read the whole thing. Otherwise, I promise you I would. <laughs> um, but uh, and then he says out of all of that, new subjects get constituted. Mm-hmm. Right. 
There's big abstract systems that have kind of broad determinations. Then there's the specific historical cultural formations that happen. And then there are the cultural practices that exist within that. And then those cultural practices produce new subjects. And all of those things, every level of that is augmentable, mm -hmm. right? It transforms over time. Um, and so, you know, in some ways, this book up to this point, up to Lecture 7, which we're about to move to, but the whole book up to this point is really, I would say, reading Marx, you know, original Marx, it's a weirdly this thing, uh, it's kind of a reproduction of the Althusserian move, right? But reading Marx in his weirdness against the Marxists so far. Mm -hmm. Cultural studies gets the real Marxism, you know, but he's not making the claim in that way, right? right but right. he's saying... Without flattening any weirdness out, without disavowing anything, cultural studies is using the tools that Marx gave us, maybe in a more efficient way, or at least in a way that actually speaks to the world we live in. Yeah, uh, like pointing back just to the previous lecture, because I think it's important here. Oh, sorry, yeah. No, yeah. Just an idea that shows up at the end of the previous lecture that I think is important for this one, uh, is that uh, Hall says in, in you know, Ultimately, ideological struggle is often or usually a contestation of an existing meaning, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's not like some new thing shows up and like now we're going to build an ideology or whatever. Um, it's taking something that everyone kind of already knows something about. So in, in, you know, this instance, race, right? Like people are very aware of like what race is in, in Jamaica and how it works uh, and trying to shift like the cultural orientation to that term to make that term mean something different than what it meant before. So domination and hegemony then. Uh, hegemony we talked about pretty extensively in the Games of Empire episode. Uh, so you can go back and look at that. I'm right, am I? I'm su sure. I'm it's been sure. like two years, I'm so sure I don't remember exactly what we talked about. <laughs> now, so. I just know that that's like the, the previous book that uh, we've talked about that used Gramsci, like to this mm -hmm. extent, uh, right. would have been that one. Um, so uh, uh, Antonio Gramsci, an Italian Marxist, uh, develops this idea of hegemony uh, to as a, as a kind of like alternative mechanism for understanding how dominance works. Uh, so when we talk about, you know, dominance and hierarchy, we tend to think of these things as sort of unitary, as sort of top down, uh, right? There is a centralized power. Again, think here of what I was talking about with, with the Althusser. Like there's, there's someone sitting in a room somewhere, like writing down the ideology and then telegraphing it out to all of the state apparatuses. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, Gramsci says like this... Uh, is this is insufficient to understanding how domination works and hegemony is actually more useful and what the difference is here uh is that uh it highlights that a an ideology does not become ascendant because there is like one economic class that just like goes whole whole hog for it uh there is usually a block of interrelated classes or sort of like social concerns that all end up uh, to some extent like on the same page with one another. So an example uh, that Hall talks through here is that while the state, right, as, a, as an institution, as an idea uh, in its, you know, kind of contemporary formation uh, is oriented uh, very clearly toward the capitalist class, um, 
the it is not intrinsically controlled by them or like there is nothing intrinsically necessarily capitalist about the state itself uh capitalism only enjoys its dominance in the particular uh, uh moment uh because there is an alliance across various classes and factions within society uh with the downstream effect that capitalist ideology is the thing that floats to the top so hegemony uh, becomes less about like uh, a repression right enforcing from the top down here's what you think here's what you believe um, and it's more about the uh, maintenance of subordination right like keeping everything kind of uh, uh, right rather than having to like be strong enough to be on top keeping everything else just kind of like scattered and weak enough to maintain your own relationships of power uh, uh, as a hegemonic force. Um, and very often, uh, Hall says, uh, what we think of as hegemony is what is general, like what is generalized across a culture is common sense, right? The things that can be taken for granted that we can all kind of agree on uh, and the differences happen elsewhere. Um, mm -hmm. And so, of course, right, this is like a good example of like the ways that uh, uh Typically, right, like uh, free market capitalism is common sense reality in the United States, right? It's just it's just common sense that if you let people make their own choices about what to buy and how to buy it and how to like do all this stuff, they're going to make the best, most rational choices for themselves because individuals know what they want and they know uh, how to get what they want. So, uh, you know, open season on the market now. Yep. Um, this also, however, includes sort of like more traditional ideas of like morality and good and bad, which Hall chides kind of the left for sort of ignoring, right? Sort of ignoring this, um, uh, and this, you know, relates to the point about religion, uh, uh, you know, Hall kind of chides the left for for uh, skirting around these issues because being able to talk in kind of the 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 vernacular of common sense morality is actually extremely important. And uh, again, because of the way that Hall conceptualizes this, uh, if you leave that stuff alone, if you're not contesting that, uh, you are giving up ground to the other side. And then it all comes out of like this historical analysis of Italy, right? Right. Mm hmm. That the that Italy Gramsci while in prison, right? Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if the, is this all in the prison notebooks. Hall doesn't say, no. but uh, Gramsci in a general sense, right? Uh, you know, is noting. It, it, but the reason I'm saying this is that you know Hall is always interested in the historical context, right? Right. Theorization emerges out of the historical context, and so Gramsci and you only really know something about a given um, uh, historical. Uh, you know, culture within history at a particular moment, right? So, you know, what's happening here uh, is that Gramsci's noting that the south of Italy has been dominated since the birth of capitalism by a basically a feudal system. It has never really emerged into a full industrial modern capitalist uh, system, you mm -hmm. know, at the time that he's writing. This is his claim. I don't know. I'm not a, a historian of Italy. And then the north has moved into a much more traditional European industrial capitalist mode. Um, and so because there is a contradiction or an, a disalignment between these two modes of production, it actually means that there's no real hegemonic force in Italy. Um, you know, there, there is no there is common sense, but there is not political 
um, consolidation mm-hmm. that's gone on, which makes for like a really opportunistic moment. I mean, Gramsci's pointing this out for two reasons. One, it means that common sense is pretty dominant, right? Mm-hmm. In the sense that like just these shared implicit ideologies are what keep Italy kind of moving and going. On the other hand, it means that it's a really fertile place for uh, new common sense to emerge, mm-hmm. right? For because there's not really a hegemonic consensus. Um, I think this is directly related to, you know, the fact that there was still a high resistance to centralized statehood in Italy in the 70s, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, um, the prime minister was kidnapped and killed. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's that's a, a big deal. That's a big thing that's happening. So, um, you know, uh, Gramsci would say this is not like a weird aberration of Italy. It's not like Italy's weird and out of out of history or something for this happening. It's because of the conditions on the ground, right? Mm-hmm. Like the ideological conditions make it such that different modes of being can can emerge. Um and I really like this kind of quotation. I think it's a summation from Hall um about reading Gramsci's um work here. Um I think it's a summation. I I don't have it right here in front of me, but he says, "Quote, hegemony is difficult work. It always has to be won." Mhm. Right? Like it's it's a struggle. Right. It's a thing you got to do. It's not a thing that is delivered to you. Mm-hmm. Um which is a little bit different from the Althusserian mode, right? Right. It's not that you just got to like rest the structure from the capitalist mode. It's you got to build hegemony. Right. And then you got to like use it as a tool. Mhm. Pretty good, I think. Pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, lecture eight, lecture eight, the final lecture. Yeah, culture, final frontier, culture, resistance, and struggle. The point here is that uh, cultural struggle uh, is a kind of, like you know when we think about like culture as we've been talking about it as kind of this uh, uh, common repository of uh, ways in which people understand their experience, right, and things that can be adapted or readapted uh, uh, throughout history for this purpose. Uh, cultural struggle is for Hall distinct from political struggle, but that is not to say, and this is, this goes back to the thing that we were saying earlier about the, you know, what proportion is going on here. It's not to say that one is more important, uh, but that rather a successful movement is going to operate on both, uh, the political side of things and on the cultural side of things, uh, that they, they're going to kind of like happen together, or you're going to have to do kind of a, a, a move, right. Where you're maintaining hegemony, uh, across like, uh, in some ways, uh, self-differentiated like classes or interests. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, if we are going to like contest the meanings of culture, uh, we need to be doing that at the same time we're doing stuff on the political side of things. Uh, one of the examples that Hall uses here is that when we talk about democracy, obviously, uh, uh, democracy in kind of the, in his time in 1983, and I think, you know, at this point still, uh, when we say democracy, we very often mean, uh, like liberal capitalist democracy, right? That's what, uh, uh, like that, that is what has been able to position itself as kind of the standard bearer for what democracy means. Um, nevertheless, Hall says, uh, more radical democratic forms are obtainable through the insistence on democracy as a principle, right? By by being able to insist, like, hey, we say we're democratic, so, like, what's going on with this electoral college thing, which seems uh, rather anti-democratic, right? 
Um, and this is not like pointing out the contradictions. Oh, look how uh, uh, stupid you all are. And like, we've solved the problem, right? Uh, this is a point of protest, right? The emphasis here is on a continual struggle. We shouldn't mistake it for kind of a reformism of like, well, we've kind of got all the pieces of democracy. And if we just got rid of the electoral college, everything would be gravy. No, it's about saying like, well, when we say democracy, uh, we seem to mean this one thing, but in practice, we're actually doing this other thing. Uh, and how are we going to reconcile that, right? Whither do we go uh, with kind of this uh, uh, division spread out before us? We have to make a choice. Um, and it becomes about sort of this orientation of yourself or like it's an orientation toward time, right? Like ultimately mm -hmm. one of the things that cultural studies does, and this is also, I think, a, a big thing for me, um, maybe also for you, Cameron, uh, is that it refuses the, the, the fixity of cultural forms and meanings, right? Like there's, there's not a, a, a sort of like, uh, form outside of history, uh, that we're aiming for and trying to perfect, right? That we're trying to bring things in line to, uh, all forms and meanings are subject to history and they will change as history moves. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. Right. You, you know, uh, nothing is a stable thing. Um, you can only kind of freeze it in amber in the moment of analysis, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, time, time is a flow. It's a thing that's occurring. Um, and you got to kind of apprehend it in a moment, but that doesn't mean you have it, right? Um, and I think that's, you know, consistent across to everything that we do in our podcasts and shows, right? I mean, that's what uh, <laughs> Too Much Future is about, the changing nature of Fallout and how we view it from this moment, uh, looking back at the thing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's what Homestuck Made This World is about, right? It's kind of a reconstruction <laughs> and an analysis from the position of the moment and from now. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, this is what we do. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think we... I, we've never put it in Hollyan terms before, but we've put it in the terms that you have, right? Um, and I think that Lecture 8 gives a pretty clear, like, hey, what do we do at Range Touch? Well, we kind of do this. Right. Um, uh, yeah, he says, this is on 180, he says, Culture is not and can never be outside the structuring field of the central contradictions that give shape, pattern, and configuration to a social formation. That is, contradictions around class, ethnicity, and gender. It is not outside of them, but it is not reducible to them, mm -hmm. right? So, like, the, the, the way that things run, that real things, that material things in the world and material circumstances and experiences uh, run into each other in the world is, like, what makes life. Mm -hmm. And you can, you can kind of look at them, right? And you can, you can bracket and get your hands around, around all of them, right? But it's never reducible to any of those given things, and you're always speaking to it from a given position. Uh, another thing that happens in this, just because we should note it, uh, sort of long-form analysis of the development of ska music. Uh, this is so good. What a way to end the book, yep. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, right? Let me, before we talk about ska, the end of the book is uh, the best summation of the final chapter, 189 to me. We have to look at both domination and resistance as processes. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yep. Uh, a good example, just to clarify what's going on there, one of the things that uh, Hall points back to rather frequently is the passage of the factory laws in England um, in the 19th century, uh, which, one, like, established, you know, sort of limits on the exploitation of labor, right? It, they, those laws were passed because uh, of agitation for uh, laborers, labor advocates, and things like that. Um, and it also had the ultimate effect of, like, basically modernizing the factory, right? 
and one of the ways that you can look at that is like, well, they tried to fight capitalism and then capitalism just bounced back, right? The factories reformatted themselves, took on a new kind of, uh, uh, like, you know, structure or whatever uh, mm -hmm. that just adapted uh, practices of exploitation uh, to the boundaries that had been set up. And Hall wants to say, like, Hall wants to point out, like, those people actually struggled, right? They actually imposed limits on how they could be exploited, like to then turn around and just sort of like consign it all to nothing because capitalism then responded in turn is to miss the point, right? You're not going to like pass the one law that kills capitalism forever. It is going to be a kind of back and forth struggle. So. Yeah. And he says very explicitly too, right? That, uh, look, if, if, if we abolish capitalism tomorrow, it would not get rid of the social structures that often make life unlivable for many people. Right. Right. I mean, he's explicitly talking about racialized logics, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if the revolution comes tomorrow, it, it, there, there's no guarantee that it doesn't inherit a bunch of also um, massively hegemonic things in the world. Which critically, right, you know, sometimes that is used as a way to, like, bludgeon anti-capitalist, uh, you know, resistance and political movements, right? well, racism would still exist, so what are you going to do, right? Mm -hmm. That's not what Stuart Hall is saying, right? He is saying all of those things are processes, right? Right. And you, you got to tackle them all. You can't just pretend like, you know, knocking one thing down will get the other ones. You can't be a class reductionist. And similarly, you can't be a uh, any kind of marginal marginalization or structuring principle reductionist, right? There are lots of structuring principles in society, and you have to address them all. You have to think of, of them all as processes, um, which I think is a, a, a pretty good way of, of handling these things, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it makes the problem look big, but as Stuart Hall says, right? I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you have to also hold in your head that, like, uh, all struggle is happening historically. It's happening in time, and it occurs, right? Right. In the sense that it's real. Mm -hmm. um, things change. Things move. Uh, there, it is only in the interests of capitalism. It is only in the interest in hegemonic dominant structures for us to believe that the world is unchanging, right? Um, because it is changing. And look, Stuart Hall is saying this as he is about to run face first into Thatcherism as the most dominant Thatcherism and Reaganism combined mm -hmm. as the most dominant paradigms worldwide, yep. right? Uh, and so, I mean, it's eighty three. Reagan's in office. Yep. Uh, and so he's not saying this, you know, there's no mention of Reagan here. There is some mention of Thatcher. Um, but like, there's no illusions about what that means. And mm -hmm. yet, right, holding on to the method of cultural studies, quad-cultural studies, right, what it is, um, gives us some tools for thinking about those things. And that might be insufficient to you, right? I don't, I don't think that has to be, not you, Michael, but you, the world, <laughs> right? To someone who is listening or to someone who's engaging, that might be insufficient. There's plenty of critiques of cultural studies. That's totally cool. Um, but I think it does demand thinking about, right? I don't think you can dismiss Stuart Hall's work out of hand. And I don't think you can dismiss the work of cultural studies out of hand because, uh, look, we're all running around through representations all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, like, you know, we, we live in a highly mediated um, and a highly hegemonic world and that there are a lot of kind of forces running around and the, the dominant hegemony operates in a lot of different ways, and you got to get some tools to deal with it. I think cultural studies gives you a bunch of good tools, even if you don't think that Stuart Hall is right about everything. Mm -hmm. um, because he didn't think everyone, you know, this book is about predecessors who he did not think were right about everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that's okay. That's perfectly fine. Um, but ska. <laughs> yes, ska music. 
<laughs> Basically, so as soon as we're done recording this, you're going to go viral by posting about Ska, right? No, I, I, I guess. I mean, I, I'm hoping, posting. hoping the episode will go viral because we feel like, yeah. Oh, I see. <laughs> People want to learn about Ska. Yeah, but it's, it is the end of this book is Stuart Hall uh, doing a close reading of the emergence of Ska within Jamaica uh, as a cultural force. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he explicitly calls, so he, he says, look, you know, Jamaican independence and Jamaican self-determination comes around. Uh, uh, there are, are people, uh, particularly an American scholar, uh, yeah. which is interesting, I didn't know this, who like goes to Jamaica and he might be a prime minister of Jamaica. I'm not 100% sure. Um, I didn't do a lot of reading beyond what's what's in the book here. Um, but, but he goes to Jamaica and he's like, hey, uh, Jamaicans need a music that mm-hmm. is not related to any of the colonizing music. And so he's like, we need to develop ska. Right. And then uh, and then does it. And I get the sense Stuart Hall doesn't like ska. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he does. Uh. Uh, it seems like a compromise to him. But I actually, re- there is very funny to me what occurs here um, is that there is a, oh gosh, it's on 199. I gotta find it. Yes. <clears throat> this is the best part. For, from a, a, a comedy perspective. <laughs> the appropriation of ska has to be understood in a larger field of struggle. One of the central aspects of Jamaican nationalism, as in all such nationalist movements, is the attempt to constitute a new subjectivity, the Jamaican identity. Having been for so long a part of the British Empire and suddenly becoming an independent country, there had to be ways of being and feeling Jamaican. The unity of Jamaican society is in fact constructed on top of a very complicated system of color distinction. Um, and then he talks quite a bit about color distinction here. Um, and uh, uh, so, so he's like talking about the intricacies of Jamaican culture. It's just a long paragraph to read. Um, so he says, uh, you know, and then you get back to Jamaican identity. And he says... Identity, then, was an arena of difference, of antagonism, of actually who this nation belonged to. That unity had to be created and constituted. It doesn't really exist in society, which is actually given, which is actually riven with all kinds of differences, color, race, class, politics, geography, and religion. You have to constitute the subjective possibility of a unity out of this, and one of the languages for doing so is music. Ska was supposed to be the music that could appeal to everyone. Everyone can join in it because it affirms the national unity of the people, despite their differences. Everyone could dance to Ska to celebrate their independence. Mm-hmm. Right. And then he kind of critiques Ska and saying that it didn't really get there, right? That right. was the idea and it didn't really accomplish it. But good God, imagine reading this and playing Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2. Yeah. <laughs> Goldfinger, you garbage monsters. You had no idea what you were doing. <laughs> Uh, the the uh, the creation of the Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2 soundtrack, ultimately uh, appropriating a maneuver of Jamaican identity, which mm-hmm. I find very interesting to think about. Yeah, and yeah, that's uh, that's the book. Pick it up, pick it up, pick it up, pick it up, pick it up. Yep, you should pick it up and read mm-hmm. Cultural Studies, 1983, a theoretical history. It was good. It was great. I I, I did, wait. Did I say at the beginning of this episode that I think I'm going to teach this? Yes, you did. Okay, I couldn't remember if that was off mic or on mic. Uh, <laughs> again, we recorded for two and a half hours, so I was absolutely wrong uh-huh. about uh, any kind of time call I make. Um, oh, boy. But uh, yeah, I think we're going to teach this in the fall. Yeah. So I, I, I think it's really good. Maybe not the whole book, but certainly three or four chapters. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and I think it was good. I mean, I like the book. I think it was good for us to cover because uh, it, it, maybe not uh, as immediately apparent how it relates to game studies, although I think maybe going forward we can now talk about like where some of these ideas that Hall puts forth might be interesting for clarifying things or like where it's interesting where these ideas don't show up where they maybe could. Uh, but I think it's also for us in general, kind of a good methodological keystone to point at, uh, since, as you said, like just about everything we do here at Range Touch is uh, uh, influenced by this in some way. Yeah, and I think a lot of the position that we come from when we talk about these books is doing kind of a cultural studies approach to the books themselves. Right, exactly. You know, like, a, you know, like I was talking about, Pazinga, Kalwa, any of those kind of classics in the field, we basically, you know... We, with uh, maybe a lighter historical touch than than maybe we we could or should, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm open to that that criticism. But uh, you know, in a general sense of like trying to understand what the what is happening in that moment and what is happening in that book to speak to that moment, um, it just so happens that in game studies, those are attached to imperial projects for the most part, mm-hmm. um, and we're not the only people to criticize that, of course, but. Um, that that has been a keystone to, to some of those episodes, but but yeah, I think so. I think we, I think yes. I think one one uh, part of it exactly as, as you're saying, right, is it gives us a good thing to point to of like, hey, here's what's kind of happening, and here's maybe where some things are missing. You know, I think part of the reason why we chose this too is uh, some of the discussions that we had of the white book of like, right, if there was a little bit more cultural studies, Stuart Hawley style cultural studies in that book on the forge, I think I I would have gotten something different out of it maybe. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, Gary Allen Fine is weirdly, uh, you know, ex- uh, exactly of this moment. Right. <laughs> um, and so you can really see what that book shared fantasy would look oh, quite yeah, different we, if we, it came through cultural studies. Right. Um, as opposed to his thing, but sorry, what were oh, you I was just, I just put together. Yeah, that's really weird. So last time we read a book published in 1983, mm-hmm. this time we read a book published in 2016, but that was a collection of lectures given in 1983. <laughs> Yeah, it's wild. <laughs> that's the connection. Yeah, that's that, that's the summer of classics. That's the kind of deep Easter eggs that are happening in the summer of classics. Yeah. Um, but the other thing too, I guess I want to say just here at the end, even though I know we're going long, is that I think reading this book and even maybe listening to what we're saying here, right? You can see where Stuart Hall and you know specifically in cultural studies has kind of been eaten by a lot of other disciplines. Mm-hmm. In the sense that the way he is saying that we should think about stuff, which is, it's a break, right? I mean, it is a moment in history. It is a transformation in theoretical um, engagement and, and intellectual engagement in the world. I think you can see a lot of that in a lot of the books that we've read, particularly newer books, but not really being flagged to Hall. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or not really being flagged to cultural studies properly. You know, cultural studies is kind of everywhere and nowhere, um, in the sense that a lot of its assumptions got just folded into other things and sometimes oppositional movements, you know, uh, in the nineties, a lot of people did, they continued doing the things that cultural studies was doing in its, you know, uh, emergence in the seventies and eighties while disavowing cultural studies because it had a kind of, um, association with, um, you know, uh, lack of rigor or an inability to actually speak to a theoretical moment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, weirdly enough, there are people who were still doing like all through Sarah style stuff while eating cultural studies, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, and and uh, I think a good good way to end this episode is uh, on page 37 uh, when he's talking about culturalism, you know, the moment of the cultural fixation mm-hmm. in theoretical engagement. And he says, 
Uh, Stuart Hall says, this is the real problem in cultural studies. It does seem to define itself by claiming to know something about everything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yes, right? You know, it's kind of everywhere and nowhere. It Mm -hmm. does speak to everything. And in speaking to everything, um, it can be easily disavowed or forgotten, you know, um, furtively. (laughs) Get it? Yeah. (laughs) Okay, good. The furtive cultural studies person so easily forgotten. That's right. Stuart Hall. So easily forgotten. <laughs> uh, next Not time. Not really. I mean, he's, he's no. truly a titan. I don't, I don't uh, you know, he's Gwyn. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is good. Yeah. I guess. I don't know. Um, I, the allegory doesn't really work out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, sorry. What's the next thing we're in? Oh, the next time. Next time we will uh, come back here and we will discuss, uh, you know, we're, we've talked about cultural studies. Next time we will be discussing game cultures. Computer Games as New Media by John Dovey and Helen W. Kennedy. Yeah, kind of the summer of culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Weirdly this is enough. part of the, this was, uh, who published this? What is this? Is this Open University? Uh, but the, the series is Issues in Cultural and Media Studies. So there you go. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we'll talk about it as we get into into that um into the book, but you know there is something interesting about this book too that it emerged. It came out in two thousand six, and it emerged in a moment of uh, contestation. You know of what is game studies going to be, mm-hmm. um, and I don't think that they won. You know if, if, yeah. if hegemony is ultimately a contestation, right? Different things running into one another, and history kind of working out by privileging certain perspectives and others. This has been an influential book for some people. I would not say that this is a book that dominates game studies in the way that several other books that came out 2005, 2006, 2007 did. And, uh, you know, it's not read uh, in the way that, like, um, uh, uh, Salem and Zimmerman is. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Even though it does take, I mean, it's much smaller, but it does take an equally wide, big, wide angle view of what games are. Right. Um, But it's, uh, you know, it comes through a different method. So I think it's going to be helpful to, to kind of think of and think about, especially after having read the read the Stuart Hall book. So uh, hopefully you enjoyed this episode, and we'll be back uh, next month with uh, this uh, with Game Cultures, Computer Games is New Media by Dovey and Kennedy. No. Oh, Michael, uh, I don't know what's the what's that thing we say at the end. The next time, folks, that you think you got yourself a little bit of the social going on, take a moment, take a deep breath, look around, and ask yourself. Are there any exclusions here that this is predicated upon? The answer may surprise you. <laughs>